Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to Valar Reredis. And welcome to the wrap-up episode for A Storm of Swords. At the end of each book in a, in a Valar Reredis uh, sequence, we like to review the book as a whole because we're so focused on chapter by chapter stuff. We sometimes miss parts of the big picture. The big picture is super interesting. Also looking at it from a book perspective, from an overview uh, side of things, we get to look at things like writing style, changes in, in arcs and differences in the books as a whole. And that's particularly important in this book because with a storm of swords, it's often cited as the most popular of the five books. And in this episode, we're going to get into why that's the case. And it's not the case for all of our guests that it's their favorite book, but everyone here knows that this is the case that is seen that way. And so we all have a variety of takes on why it holds that title. And because that's such an opinion-based topic, it's not like we can research data on why it's the most popular. That's a little more of a nebulous, opinion-based sort of thing. All the more perfect that we have a group of guests here to discuss the book and give their opinions. So let's start by introducing said guests, starting off with many-time guests uh, who's been on our show for a lot of different things, and I've been on theirs for the same. Lady Gwen of Radio Westeros. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. It's like deja vu, isn't it? <laughs> Still? Again? <laughs> For those of you hearing this the first time, we had a strange day recording this. This is sort of like a part two. So, Joe Buckley, uh, host of the Isle of Faces podcast, who is putting out episodes in tandem with Valerie Reedus, which is great, as well as you're also the author of the Great Castles of Westeros book. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, good to see you. I love a sequel, so I like these. And this will be fine. This will fit well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Take two. It's, it's a Storm of Swords review. Take two. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> it's better when it rhymes. <laughs> so much better when it rhymes. Uh, and Nina Friel is here. The you are, your thoughts have been present all throughout Valar Reredis, and you have an excellent blog on Tumblr called Good Queen Alley with one L. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. You see, you made the electric boogaloo joke before I made it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I stole it. I can't. That's okay. I can't resist an electric boogaloo. As long boogaloo as someone made it, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel entitled because I actually saw Breaking One in the theater. So I'm age. I'm dating myself a bit by saying that. Thank you to the patrons who support History of Westeros throughout Valeritas and before, and perhaps in the future as well including History of Westeros' first sword, Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, and our dragon rider patrons, including Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black, and hunter of House Blackcloud, the storm runner, king of the sky, rider of Horanicon, the windworm, a dragon with scales of brilliant platinum, silver, horns, claws, and fangs of pure white, with eyes the color of diamonds of fire. Yeah. All right, uh, a couple quick announcements and then we'll get right to it. We have a Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode up for patrons. The full public release is next Sunday. That's Sunday the 24th. There will not be a live stream on the 24th. Uh, we'll just have the debut of that episode and then we will begin a Feast for Crows the week after. So May 31st is the start date for Valar Reredis, A Feast for Crows Part 1. 
And A Feast for Crows will take us, I think it's 11 weeks. So one, either the same or one week shorter than a Game of Thrones, but with a lot fewer breaks during Game of Thrones, we had a lot of travel and other things scheduled. Now, for very obvious reasons, we do not have travel and such planned uh, for the near future. Also want to announce the return of the Intelligent Speech Conference in a different form. Last year, I was a presenter and attendee in New York for the very first Intelligent Speech Conference and it returns this year in virtual form. It's going to be Saturday, June 27th. It's only $10 to attend. And there's going to be about 40 podcasters giving presentations on, well, a variety of topics based in their area of uh, expertise or interest or hobbyism. And you, it's going to be run like a lot like a regular convention where at any given moment, there's three or four panels happening. So you always have a choice, perhaps a tough choice as to which one to attend. All right. Starting with a question from Alec Hamilton on Twitter, who said, losing a part of oneself when resurrected is a mini sacrifice, question mark. And he's touching on a larger question. So I really like this as a lead in. And the idea here is basically, what is the nature of sacrifice? In A Storm of Swords, the concept is explored very, very thoroughly and from a lot of different angles. We've got it from in the north with Craster. We've got it with the leeches and Stannis and then with the bigger part of Stannis with uh, Edric Storm. And we've got suggestions of it in the north in previous books. And there's lots of more other non-literal forms of sacrifice like sending men out to die in wars and things like that. So, but to speak to the concept of sacrifice in a supernatural term, perhaps... Uh, when Beric, for example, lights his sword on fire, it's a miniature sacrifice in that he's using his own blood to light the blade. And when he comes back to life each time, perhaps to do more for humanity, he's a little less of himself. In a sense, that is a bit of a sacrifice. And so that does speak to the larger sense of sacrifice that's being brought up in the narrative in a variety of places. And so Nina, we'll start with you here. Talk to us about the sacrifice theme, how it applies to what we've already seen in prior books and how deeply it runs in this one. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Because, you know, something, something that I've been saying for a little while now, and I think it certainly rings true, is that what, what the story overall seems to be suggesting is that if, if you really want to make something happen supernaturally, if you really want to touch into that magic, you've got to be willing to put yourself on the line. You can't sacrifice someone else. You can't put someone in your place. You've got to be willing to offer yourself. It's, I feel very, very strongly that the reason Daenerys's dragon hatching worked in part is because Daenerys walked into the fire willingly. She was willing to give herself to make this happen. Obviously she survived, but she was willing to give herself. And this is something that Stannis in this book has to learn because he doesn't understand at the outside is that you can't sacrifice Edric Storm to get dragons. You can't put someone else on the line. If you're going to really get this magic to work, you've got to give yourself. And this is something we see very clearly with Beric is if Beric dies so many times and he's able to come back. And part of the reason I think behind that is why he's sort of allowed by R'hllor to come back to the extent that that's, you know, an applicable way to phrase it is Beric is dying to save people who can't defend themselves or are unable to defend themselves. He is giving of himself completely to death to, to stand up for these righteous causes. And in the end, he gives himself completely to raise raise Catelyn from the dead. So it, it really is this 
if you, if you want to make something happen supernaturally, it's got to be you on the line and nobody else. Well said. Yeah. And Joe, what about you? What do you think about this parallel, this, this concept and this theme? I think first off, if you say uh, Storm of Swords in comparison to the rest of the series, you don't actually think of the blood sacrifice and so much of the supernatural in comparison. And maybe because we're not a Winterfell and we don't have the Weirwoods and uh, Melisandre's not popping out any shadow babies in this book and stuff like that. But it actually is all around. We have the leeches, we have uh, Craster comes back and Lightning says we have all this barrack stuff. I think to Nina's point, yeah, it's, it's dead on. Intent is the the key here, and that ties in so strongly with like a lot of Brienne stuff about no chance and no choice. It's not it, to a certain point. It's not the result. It's what you're trying to do. So I really like that point by Nina. And as for Beric and what he ends up doing, but we don't even know actually in this book. I should be pointed out we don't know he's done that by the end of Storm of Swords. That doesn't really come up until A Feast of Crows. That's just he's just not there. But um, which I completely forgot. I thought we did get that in the epilogue. But when we do find that out and. It actually comes down to a little bit of a difficult reminder because we do have that Beric kind of um, uh, monologue to Aya about how he forgets the woman he was supposed to marry in his castle and everything. So we can't really say, as much as we might want to, that Beric is definitely being noble by passing it on to Catelyn. And that's quite a difficult concept to get around because he, he is Mr. Noble and he does these wonderful things through the first three books. But he is also trying to escape a kind of living horror that he than gifts to someone else. So uh, again, we don't have the details. We don't know what his mindset was or whether he thought they would both come back or whatever. We don't really know, but it, it's a really difficult thing to wrap our heads around. And especially if, if you're like me and you like Catelyn, and so when she comes back, you're like, ah, yes, yeah, great, I like this. <laughs> but then you realize, oh, she has also inherited all this stuff that Beric was talking about, about forgetting and kind of wasting away. Again, that may, maybe that's just because he came back so much, but it's not clear cut in any way so yeah sacrifice definitely and what you're giving of yourself that Nina says is a huge huge part of not just the sacrificial plot lines but kind of all over right on yeah well said um and lady gwen what do you think about all this well if it's sacrifice is such a it's a huge topic isn't it but um in in this book we talk about Beric that I always think about Beric losing a part of himself every time in relation to Jon Snow. And I think we talked about that a few weeks ago when we did over on our channel, we talked, did a Jon Snow live stream and what would he be like? You lose a little part of yourself when you're resurrected. As far as the theme of self-sacrifice, which you guys have been touched touching on that is you know sacrificing something that's important to you giving things willingly um it puts me in mind of melisandra saying you know if a man gives uh you know if you have a thousand cows and you give one it doesn't mean anything but you give the only cow you own that's a true sacrifice so it's being there being present giving a part of yourself or something of value to you is going to be such a huge theme going forward from here that we could talk for hours about. Yeah, for real. <laughs> obviously not, not the purpose of this, of this discussion, but you know, it's where this whole idea of sacrifice is just so big and huge. And um, there's so much groundwork done on it in this book couple of good questions here from commenter Curtis Franks. First of all, he sends a super chat, says maybe this will boost your mood. Well, thank you for that, <laughs> Curtis. Also, he says uh, about 
Stoneheart, from a supernatural point of view, is it possible that Stoneheart inherited Barrick's multiple deaths, like the spirit of coming back multiple times? I, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I thought maybe it was just her coming back the one time, but I wonder if there's some leftover... I don't know what you would even call that, like ectoplasm from Ghostbusters or something. <laughs> <laughs> any, any, any of y'all have a take on that? That's a really, that's a really tough question. I never thought about it that way. It, I tend to think that it's more because she was dead for days. Mm, yeah, that's a big. I agree um, with that. You know, and Barrick was brought back instantly, so he had these little miniature deaths, whereas she had this great big one traumatic event that yeah. not that his deaths were tra- weren't traumatic but you know they were kind of resolved quickly and hers <laughs> was not but it's interesting you know that the method that of how she was brought back to life could yeah. certainly have mm-hmm. a have a play a role to the extent that they're, they're they're fighting for very very different things so so stoneheart really is a spirit he is a, a avenging spirit her her entire mo is to wreak vengeance on the people who are responsible for this barrack mm-hmm. that wasn't so much barrack's mo as it was trying trying to make things a little better for the people of of the riverlands so yeah. obviously the the line between justice and vengeance is not always an easy one in a song of ice and fire <laughs> but it, i think it's a very that may also play into you know i think when Stoneheart dies, it'll be just just the one time and not, you know, kind of yeah. brought back several times like, right. like Barry. Yeah, that's mm. that's a great way to put it. Yeah, the whole, the deference in time, I think is big. And and do you guys think that there's an, emo, the emotional component matters? Uh, one theory mm. I've seen out there is the thing they were doing last when they died is yes. the thing that they seem to be really focused on. Like Barrick is just really focused on mm. that last last duty given to him by the king and Stoneheart was already, Catelyn was already targeting phrase at the red wedding like jingle bell when when she was killed we'll start with joe do you think that's uh there's some merit to that idea yeah that's a fear i've heard i think i heard it from uh, joe magician in relation to john and um, what he was thinking about at the time i could definitely see that being being a, a really big factor and again it kind of relates into what nina was saying about how that lines up with like how do you decide what's what's a good obsession for these raised people to have because, okay <laughs> Catelyn wants to kill a load of phrase and that's good because we none of us like any of the phrase but what if she happened to have a beef with House Blackwood then we'd feel differently because <laughs> like, we have no problem with them it just so happens it lines up quite nicely because people have been able to see all these evil things and, uh, and to be honest we just don't have enough information to talk about what's happened to the Brotherhood and how split they are from that original mission we can kind of guess because they're not all there and we don't really know, but then they still have like, the orphanage at the inn and they seem to be involved in that. So we, d- we just don't know yet. And that's definitely one of the, the win storylines that I'm really kind of desperate to see is hmm. how much Lady Stoneheart is still kind of paying the, um, the duty, especially because she was also the noble of this uh, land. She's essentially the only one left, kind of, hmm. if you kind of leave out Edmund and Brendan. So she <laughs> owes a lot more anyway. And then also with this kind of repayment of vengeance. So I really want to see how much is her being, getting back for her, what happened to her and Rob and how much is her protecting the small folk, et cetera. It's a very similar question to what people are wondering with Daenerys. Like she's ruling Slaver's Bay, but she also torched some people. And, and maybe we were wondering what's going to happen when she gets to all these other cities, the free cities and King's Landing and, are innocents going to die? Well, really, it's a question of how many innocents are going to die. There's no way cities get taken without innocents dying. But 
that's a similar question. Like with Barrick, he was focused on protecting the small folk. And a part of that was killing these bad guys where Stoneheart is like killing the bad guys. And maybe that's helping the small folk, but probably not because now all the, the phrase and, and the Lannisters and everybody are on lockdown, like hunting anyone who might be helping the bandits because they're so violent and dangerous. So arguably it's worse for the peasants uh, because of that. So this is a real, this is a real important theme. Like at what point, and it, it ties in with the whole justice and duty theme that is indeed part of all the books, but perhaps more prominent in this one than anyone. I'm not sure about that, but let's, uh, let's continue with this, with this idea. Another version of this question, also from Curtis, sacrificing something. We talked about sacrificing yourself. We'll throw this back over to you, Nina, since you, you led us into this topic. What about sacrificing something that's more important to you than yourself? Like, I don't think this applies to Stannis because Stannis has not shown a great love of his daughter. But what if Ned Stark was forced to sacrifice Sansa? Well, we saw that he wasn't willing to, like politically. Exactly. He just wasn't mm-hmm. willing to do it. But, uh, and, and maybe that's just the answer. Just no. The answer is no, I won't do that. <laughs> like you're not, I'm mm-hmm. not going to be Agamemnon. I'm not going to be that. But the concept is still, it's still a tough question because the question is, well, important to you. Well, that's not the same as, as you, is it? Because you're not the one suffering. Right. Well, you are suffering, but not in the same type of suffering. Exactly. No, and I, and I think that's a very important distinction is that, you know, ultimately you can't decide for someone else what someone else is willing to give up. You have to decide for yourself, if I want this to happen, then I've got to give it from myself. So I think to your, you know, to your point about um, Stannis, this may come to a head in, and, you know, obviously this is going to be on the Storm Swords, but this may come to a head if if this is a question of Shireen. Stannis may very justifiably, or at least to him, very justifiably believe this is necessary to save the world. He's not doing it because, you know, he hates his daughter or anything like that. <laughs> but it's still not enough because it's not you. It has to be you, I think, is, is the, what the story is saying. I think I agree, yeah. Um, Lady Gwen, do you have a, a thought on this? Just, yes. I mean, I think what, what matters. <laughs> it, amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, pretty much. I agree that uh, with the thought that what was in your head is kind of what's going to come, what dictates what you're doing when you come back. I definitely um, would agree that it's the self-sacrifice part because Melisandre gets it wrong over and over again. We see that in a variety of different ways. But when she's talking this whole cow thing that she talks about, um, a man offering the only cow he owns is in her opinion is a true sacrifice, but you know what? Like a cow is still a cow. It's yeah. not yourself. Yeah. You know, it <laughs> like, doesn't really, doesn't hurt you that much, uh, maybe, you know, in superficial ways. So, um, you know, when it comes down to Stannis, if we equate his daughter with a cow, it's probably not going to work. Well, we know it's not going to work. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can figure out it's not going to work. There's probably a lot of different reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, related question from Lady R. Ardross. She mentioned, she brings up the talk where Donald Noy mentions the different type of metals <laughs> that the Baratheon brothers are. And that isn't in this book, except that John remembers that in this book, or maybe it is in this book. It doesn't matter. John definitely thinks of that in this book. And 
he, uh, she, Lady R's point is that John is along the same lines. He's like Valyrian steel because he's ice reforged kind of, and he's fire and ice. And the reason that relates pretty well to this topic is the idea that Valyrian steel may require human sacrifice to be created in the first place. And well, that's interesting, isn't it? And it also, of course, relates to the concept of, of light, the original Lightbringer story, not necessarily the true story, but the first one we hear through Salador San, which involves plunging a flaming sword into Nissa Nissa's heart, which completes the forging, which very clearly sounds like a form of human sacrifice to make a sword. Uh, even if the sacrifice is willing, which sounds like Nissa Nissa was, according to the story, whether or not she really was is, is up for debate, but that's not really what I'm trying to get at. The point is, and this relates to a second question I'm going to bring up at the same time from Hunter of House Black Cloud, who wants us to talk about the Mance-Rhaegar parallels. Now, this is really interesting to me because, sure, John has a lot in common with Mance, and John, of course, has a ton in common with Rhaegar, his real father. But the Mance-Rhaegar parallels are such a strong thing that they've driven some small percentage of the fandom to, to go a little crazy with that and think they're the same person, which I think is a little wild or a lot wild. But it does speak to just how much in common those two characters have. They do have a lot in common, but I do not think they're the same person, but they do have a lot in common. And both of those two, there's some sacrifice wrapped up in the way they slash lead or slash think about prophecy. Rhaegar, it's a lot more nebulous. We don't really know what he was thinking on a lot of things. And, and I mean that colloquially and literally, like what was Rhaegar thinking? And what was Rhaegar <laughs> thinking? You know, <laughs> with Mance, we see this front and center. He risks his campaign. He does not attack as, as viciously or as thoroughly as he could because his goal is to save his people. He has a much different, he's not, his invasion is not about conquest. It's not about, you know, glory. It's about staying alive. And he's willing to do a lot for his people, perhaps even sacrifice his own life. Uh, so I want to tie all that together. So that's, that's a lot to, to chew on at once. The concept of John Mance, Valyrian steel and sacrifice as it pertains to Mance and Rhaegar. That is a lot for one question. I admit. So I won't force anyone to go first. Who is actually ready to go first on that one? <laughs> well, one thing, one thing that I did want to point out, which, I mean, this isn't really answering the question. This is just adding yet another layer to the question. <laughs> um, one of the things that I noticed in terms of this reread was how similar Daenerys's sort of trek in Slaver's Bay is and and what Mance is doing beyond the wall because Ooh. they're both these leaders of these very, very kind of different, like lots of different kinds of and lots of different background people, but they're all united in the same thing. And that's getting away from slavery. It's mm. it's escaping a, it's escaping slavery and trying trying to stop it in as much as you can. Like what what Daenerys is doing is she's she's destroying it, but she realizes I can't just leave or these people will be back in slavery. I have to I have to stay and rule and be a queen. What Mance is doing is yeah, he wants to be king beyond the wall and he's a claim king beyond the wall. But what he's doing in the end, what he tells John is, 
look, I need safety for these people. I need to get them to a place where the others can't get to them. So that's something that, again, the, the Rhaegar man's parallels made me think of Daenerys man's parallels. So <laughs> that really doesn't answer the question, but I just thought it was interesting. Well, it's, it, it's, it is interesting, you're right, because there are, these themes apply to so many different characters because it is a leadership theme. Sacrifice is a supernatural theme is one thing, but it ties into sacrifice as a theme of leadership and what you're willing to do for your people. And that's kind of what I was trying to get at, but I think I didn't explain it super well. Leading, I think I did try to bite off too much at once here, but still, it's it's still we can still make something good of this. So, um, Lady Gwen, what do you think? Approach this any way you like, since I've given you a fire hose here. I just I'll just go with the the man's Rhaegar where we started. Okay, which um, I think I heard in there some man's Rhaegar parallels exist. They exist for a reason because Mance is close to John and um, you know, we're, we're, we're meant to be um, kind of seeing these things all in proximity to John. I, I think, you know, I think eventually uh, we'll get to some other parallels that are in proximity to John. I think we'll talk about at least one of them today, maybe yeah. um, mm-hmm. with a different character that's there just to make us kind of think along those lines. Uh, it's, it's a weird thing, and I'm not really giving it great eloquence, but how George writes these little hints in there that aren't really, they're kind of like side eyes. You know? <laughs> That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Um, it's going to be really interesting when, the whole, when all the Rhaegar stuff is explained, or at least as much as we're going to get, the man's rereading Mance's chapters is going to probably mm. feel a lot different. We'll probably have a lot more certainty on where those parallels lie. And rather than we won't feel quite as vague about it be like, Oh yeah, this is that. Mm. Cause we don't, we don't know that much about Rhaegar's personality. And I think we will learn more about it and that will probably tie in. That will probably create more connections. Right. It's like what you were saying. Um, well, actually you were saying it before when no one was listening. <laughs> It's in the stream uh, that didn't happen. In the, in the stream that wasn't. Um, you, you said about how the foreshadowing in Feast and Dance is a little more difficult because the foreshadowing that occurs in the first three books, most of it's already resolved. So this is, I think, along those lines where obviously the story of Rhaegar is still uh, unfolding for us. And that stuff is going to be a lot more evident in hindsight or going forward. Right on. Uh, Joe, what do you think? So I watch this. I'm going to have an answer that encompasses all these questions. All in one. <laughs> no, no, really not. I feel like he's been writing an essay on the side. <laughs> yeah, I've got this notebook. One I really, no, I really like to test my guests. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's like, no, okay, ten thousand words incoming. <laughs> we had our warm up. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes an hour. No, I can only really talk to uh, to two of those points. And the first is that sacrifice is part of a leadership thing because. It's not, um, it's not a straightforward thing. You can't just say, okay, sacrifice and you win. That's, that's how you do it. It's, firstly, it's relative to everyone. One sacrifice is not the same to, to Stannis as it would be to Ned, for a pretty straightforward example. And you don't know whether which sacrifice is which because Stannis's actual problem with the kind of Edric Storm debate is, okay, but if I don't kill Edric, then I'm, I'm like technically sacrificing everyone else. So it's not a, a clean-cut decision, and there's still a, a lot of really complicated discussions to have for Daenerys, for Stannis, for John, for all these people, because there's no click-up map where you can't just press the sacrifice button and then you move forward a step. 
Um, as for uh, Mance, for, firstly, I really like that we're talking about Mance because he is one of the non-POV people that really stuck out to me this time. I love what Nina said about that comparison to Daenerys. I hadn't thought about that. That's really on point. But it's, I just like that we're seeing this monumental uh, moment for Mance in that it's, this is a decades-long plan, and we're finally seeing like the big day of it. He's there. He's done all this thing that's really never happened before, other than maybe Nymeria coming to dawn. We've not really seen that kind of runaway migration work. So this is a really huge moment, and sacrifice is a part of that. And we see because he he does end up losing in in the end, kind of. Yeah. But now, anyway, so we have to um, we have to kind of think, okay, how much and the end of this book and the end of dance. So we don't know how much he's going to win, but if it gets his ultimate goal of the wildlings south, like it seems to have happened for now, then um, yeah, sacrifice, I guess. Right on. Well said. Why do people consider A Storm of Swords the best book? I'll go over a few uh, basic details that make it different. And some of that explains why it's the most popular, but other things are just unique characteristics about it. One is that it's not the longest, but it's almost the longest. It's certainly about maybe two chapters worth shorter than A Dance with Dragons, but it has more total chapters and it's more focused on the POVs that it has, which some people like that more. I think some people like the greater variety of POVs in A Dance with Dragons, but you know, that's that's a matter of preference. As far as backstory, I think this is a really major point, which is that Game of Thrones has awesome backstory. Clash of Kings has awesome backstory. A Storm of Swords has awesome backstory. But A Storm of Swords, each book builds on the backstory of the others and you get a larger collective of backstory and a more filled out backstory. By the time we get to the end of A Storm of Swords, you've got a very thorough picture of Jamie's story vis-a-vis the Mad King, something that we had bits and pieces of through Ned's point of view. Now we have multiple point of views on that, multiple people's examples, multiple memories of it. It's a lot more fleshed out and thorough. And that applies to a lot of things, Rhaegar and Lyanna in other ways, Tourney and Harrenhal, lots of different historical introductions, plus things that are introduced for the first time, like the concept of the Blackfires. Uh, That's new to A Storm of Swords. And then there's some really cool characters like Oberyn and Olena that we didn't really, we, we may have known they existed, but they didn't really have screen time. They were barely talked about. Also, you just get a full arc of a lot of characters. Rob has a whole, a full story across three books. Catelyn, well, sort of, because of Lady Stoneheart, has a full story. Lysa, full story. Tywin, full story, right? G.R. Mormont, all these characters. Egret, there's so many of them. And a lot of these took multiple books to resolve. Only a couple of characters were really big for only one book. Ned is an example. Robert, maybe. Renly is really in two books, but he, you know, most of his uh, action was probably about a, only a book long. But a major point beyond that is, I think, the style of the ending and how personal it is. There's lots of battles and supernatural stuff at the ending of all, all the books, really. But... There's all these great character reveals at the end of A Storm of Swords that I think sets it apart. Tyrion learning the truth about Tysha from Jaime. Jaime learning more about Cersei and being lied to about Joffrey's murder. These are huge reveals that change both of these characters' arcs, perhaps for good. Danny learning about Jorah. Lysa learning she can't fly. Uh, 
and Sansa learning all sorts of things. There's just lots of big reveals that change characters' outlook for good. And that makes it feel more personal. I mean, the, the fact that we're really wrapped up in these stories, to borrow a thought from, I think, Joe from the first time we recorded this, <laughs> he points out that Tywin's a great example of this because it's a, the, the, we feel it personally on Tyrion's level. But it also has gigantic ramifications politically, which that part doesn't really start in the book. That starts in the next book. But Tyrion's processing of what he's done also doesn't really start till, well, A Dance with Dragon two books later, but his next chapter, which is two books later. So starting uh, with Lady Gwyn, talk to us about what you think about A Storm of Swords, what separates it from other books, and is it your favorite of the books? And if not, what which one is? And uh, yeah, just all that. <laughs> it's, it's the day of uh, big questions. <laughs> big questions. It is not my favorite. Uh, Feast for Crows is my favorite. I probably Storm is my second favorite. Cool. Which which is good because it it does a lot of heavy lifting setting up Feast for Crows, and you know a lot of a, a lot of what you see with. Characters, I was struck by the fact that so many characters end with them leaving, going somewhere else, uh, or getting set up to do something, whatever comes next. It was really, I guess, what you're speaking about um, with complete arcs, even the characters that are going to continue on, it's almost like a curtain came down very much more so than in, in any of the other books. And, you know, when we come back with Feast for Crows, it's going to be something new for pretty much everybody. I mean, everybody ends up going, leaving, except for, uh, we said Sam and Jamie and arguably Sam and Jamie are about to go or leave or, you know, pretty much sure. early on in a face for crows. So, um, so even with uh, characters that aren't point of views, uh, you see that you definitely see that happening. So, um, that is what struck me as a real stand-up thing. And all that backstory too, there's so much, I mean, we can talk about it when we get into individual characters, but there is so much world building and so mm -hmm. many of the little mysteries that we love to solve and, you know, find the way George lays clues here, there, and everywhere. There's so much of it in A Storm of Swords sprinkled throughout the book. It's a lot of ways to answer this question, isn't it? This is, this is uh, it's hard to point to what exactly it is that makes people love it so much, but there is no shortage of possible answers, I think. Mm -hmm. So Joe, you're someone who does think, uh, Storm, who does call Storm of Swords your favorite book. Is that right? That's true. All right. I confess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it definitely is. And there's, there's a thousand different reasons. Uh, you could easily just say purely the, the run from the Red Wedding right to the epilogue just that on its own as a, as a, basically a half of a book is it's just ridiculous when you compare it to kind of any other kind of story and any kind of literature, the amount of like named events that you fit in there that I could say to you one word and you know what I mean. And we just get, I don't know, like 10 of them fit into half a book. It's, it's incredible. But I think what makes it, the whole thing stand out to me is that it's the best culmination of both past and present. It's got, because we're trying to round off kind of, everything from this first half of the series if we're uh, talking about the five-year gap and this was supposed to be a line in the sand for the the first act of the whole series if you like so we are rounding everything off and like you said so many of these final chapters literally go back to the biggest 
core element from that POV's first chapter, for instance, like John thinking about Winterfell when that's how we saw him beginning, Tyrion and Tywin, um, Daenerys and wanting to go home and come to Westeros. And you can apply it to almost anyone, really. Um, That's Sam's true. And Winfrey as well. Sam yeah. getting ready to go back south. He's afraid of encountering his father. Yeah. Yeah, you can do it literally anyone. And I think it's kind of been served really well because it's just so happened to fall as the middle book uh, for nine years now. So it's the Game and Clash is supposed to be the beginning and the Feast of Dance uh, well, they're concurrent first off, but they are the, the future. We don't know where they're all headed yet. So this one is really the peak. And, and like you mentioned, I just love that George is so brilliantly can put all these action big events, but also have the, the, the foundation and the character investment in all that, which is what puts the whole series above everything else, really, not, not just this book. Yeah. Well, before I throw it over to Nina, let me, let me address something else you said that's important here that I, I had a little note on, talking about where things take place. Uh, despite it being such a long book and nearly the longest, it's more focused in certain areas. Both feast, uh, well, feast maybe isn't as uh, as isn't so spread out because it tries to focus, but feast and dance as a whole cover a huge amount of area, and even dance by itself covers a huge amount of area. A Storm of Swords is pretty focused in King's Landing, the Riverlands, and the North, meaning the Wall, because uh, the Winterfell isn't isn't present really at all. We don't have the Stormlands, where which we did have in the Clash of Kings. <laughs> And we don't really have uh, a lot of action elsewhere. And we don't have the Iron Islands, which we did have in Clash of Kings. So those regions obviously matter. They're spoken of, you know, soldiers come from there, et cetera. But it's not nearly the same in terms of where the, the characters are and where the stories are taking place. So that's a big difference from A Storm of Swords compared to the what's coming next, which is things get massively spread out, way more POVs, way more areas, uh, so that's a big defined change. So uh, Nina, if you want to roll that into your answer, feel free. But if <laughs> if not, go ahead and just say what you're going to say. <laughs> well, and just to kind of go off of, of Joe's point a little bit is Star Wars Words, I think, is very popular in part because it's a very cohesive book with the books that led up to it, mm. you know, where because the five-year gap was something that planned but didn't happen, we get a feast for crows and dance with dragons, which while certainly not bad books by any stretch of the imagination, are books that are operating as sort of a response to that mm -hmm. or, or kind of dealing with, oh, I have to get rid of that. Now, how do I fix this now? Whereas A Storm of Swords is the natural conclusion to a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings. This is the this is the end of the first act. So while certainly things change in terms of plotting over the two, there's really not a whole huge amount that was changing that it, as compared to A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. So you're seeing a book that fits very nicely with the books that came after it in a way that A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons don't quite fit nearly as nicely. The other thing that I think makes A Storm of Swords very popular is there are a lot of whiz-bang moments. There are a lot of really big moments. There are big reveals. There are big things happening. And not to say the other books don't have those, but Storm of Swords has a lot and a lot of really big ones. You know, they you want battles, you've got them. You want crazy weddings, you've got them. You want big reveals, you've got them. You want shocking deaths, you've got them. It's, it's all here. <laughs> Basically, every POV has one. Yeah. So it, it, it is, it's a book where if you want excitement and dramatic things happening, this is this is the book for you. That's very well said. It's It's got so much that it, it, it doesn't necessarily have, I wouldn't want to call them flaws necessarily, but it has aspects to it that are more uh, focused. And like you said, 
if you like, if you really love Tyrion, Danny, or John, well, that's not in feast. That's a strike against that book. And if you want, uh, if you don't like cliffhangers, well, that's a strike against the Dance of Dragons because Dance of Dragons has a ton of cliffhangers. And George didn't <laughs> George didn't plan it that way. Apparently, some chapters were cut because the book was so long. It's already the longest book. So. Whether you hold that against the book or not, it's, it's a fact that the book has cliffhangers in it. Now, is it fair, though? Since we talk, we, let's move into the five-year gap uh, more as a focused concept and topic here. Is it fair that Storm of Swords gets viewed this way because it, like you say, it was planning to have a five-year gap and then that didn't work out? Is it fair that we don't hold Storm of Swords, quote-unquote, accountable as if it's an entity. We're, we're blaming the, the narrative, the lack of five-year gap on the books that come after it, when maybe we should be saying, well, maybe Storm of Swords should be set up a little differently. Maybe it's not fair to view it this way. Now, of course, fair, who cares about fair when we're talking about <laughs> judging a book? But still, it's an interesting concept in terms of how we view it. It's like, well, uh, a historical figure like Richard the Lionheart is someone that people look back on with uh, a variety of takes, one of which is that he was great because he was a great warrior. But if you look at when he died, he left this, the country in great debt. And so people remember the heroism, but they don't remember the great debt he left behind. So his, the people after him had a big, inherited a great struggle. Now, the, so that's kind of the point here is that A Storm of Swords is narrative style left a feast for crows and a dance with dragons with some pieces to pick up. Um, it's all coming from the same guy. So it's not like it's all George R. R. Martin. This isn't George R. R. Martin's <laughs> descendant, you know, George the Lionheart. So uh, the metaphor doesn't fully work in that sense, but I, I still like using it because I don't know. I just liked using it. <laughs> so five, let's talk about the five-year gap then. Let's get into that. It was set up for a lot of things to go a certain way. George cites the death of Oberyn as a thing that just needs a response to, but patron Paul Barry points out a lot of plot lines seem like they wouldn't have worked very well if they had a five-year gap. So let me read his question. Has George said when he started realizing it wouldn't work? As in, did he finish the Storm of Swords always thinking there'd be a gap and only realize later? Just seems weird that he'd have, or that he'd leave so many major plot points, basically never intending to describe them. I get John and Danny ruling for five years, I get Littlefinger and Sansa consolidating rule in the Vale, but Stannis's war would surely be over. What happened with the Wildlings? Would Stoneheart have run wild for five years, killing Freys and Tyrion just wandering around for five years in Essos? A lot of that just wouldn't have worked. So I agree with Paul, a lot of that wouldn't have worked. And some of the ones he says would have worked, I'm not even sure about that. Like, I'm not sure that that Sansa's thing would be, would be work out so great alone, but maybe it would. I know you had a take on that one specifically, Joe. So for, for, we'll start with you this time. Uh, five-year gap. Um, you have a lot of, of knowledge on the five-year gap and a lot of thoughts on it. So you can respond to some of these specific points or just say uh, whatever you want to say about the five-year gap because I know that you have great thoughts on it. Well, knowledge, that might be a straight obsession, yes. <laughs> I think I have. I don't know if I've come up anything conclusive. I have many thoughts. Um, yeah, I've kind of been obsessed with the five-year gap this time around because I, I really wish I could uh, read it from someone who was reading it as they were coming out on kind of publication timeline. And I wish I knew about the five-year gap but didn't know that we didn't get it because I think you can view a lot of these things very, di very differently, like you say. And yeah, the Sansa one, that really sticks out to me because, well, first I just don't want her to be around Peter Baelish for five years. That sounds <laughs> horrible in all sorts of ways. I don't know what that would do to a person. As far as I know, no one's kind of had to 
do that really since he was a child. So we don't know what that would do, but I definitely wouldn't want to see it for Sansa. And George has said that the kind of the reason he wanted to do this mainly was to age the children up. I think probably if he could do it all again, he would have just started with the molder because he's obviously found this isn't a, uh, the right way to do it. But for Bran, you can get away from get away with it slightly because he'd kind of be eight to twelve or thirteen. That's not too bad. But for Iron Sansa, that's very very differently because they're kind of in teenager pre at preteen level. So for Sansa to go from thirteen fourteen to eighteen nineteen that's like a different person and we all, we all know how different we are in that kind of timeline so George is really introducing an entirely new character there but even if we do have all this background for her that would be very very difficult to do and like I say especially with a teenager being influenced by Peter Baelish and the same for Ira as well you'd miss out so much important uh, foundational stuff and I think the other one we spoke about before and when we uh, first had this question was the North as well would just be Mm. A completely different storyline because, uh, as we have it at the moment, uh, Stannis and John have, uh, as at the end of this book, I mean, uh, they've got together. Like right, we know what we need to do, but they don't even know about the Boltons yet. That's not even coming. And so, once they get there, then what happens? Do we? Okay, so now we have to turn around. What happened? Did they just stare at each other across the gift for five years? They know you go, no, you go. Okay, we'll do it after winter. We'll just wait. And yeah, but we we don't know. That would be interesting. I guess the idea would have been to open and Stannis kind of has the wall garrisoned. Like you say, that would be pretty cool to see. But uh, yeah, I just don't know what happens with that, that whole North storyline would be completely different. So to answer one of Paul's questions directly, first of all, great takes there, Joe. He's, he wants to know, did George write A Storm of Swords thinking there'd be a gap and only realize later? Yes. The answer is yes. When, he, when A Storm of Swords was published we were all expecting a five-year gap. Like that was, we thought that was coming. It, it was announced during the writing process that it was being scrapped. And then he, Feast for Crows, that's part of why Feast for Crows took so long. And, and then the Dance of Dragons took long from there. And then it's just kind of spiraled from there. But that's just, uh, but that is a pretty straightforward. Yes, he did think he was going to be writing the five-year gap. And I forgot to mention as well, I think part of the reason that uh, George kind of, uh, ran with this idea and thought he could maybe get away with it is specifically because of this book's Daenerys chapter where we do miss out a lot of the key events that you, you would expect to see on page like, like Yonkai and Marine and he's writing them uh, kind of in a uh, the past tense kind of flashback not even flashback but just mm -hmm. Danny remembering them type area so if he thinks okay well I can, if I can do it for this maybe I can just extrapolate it out and do it for one year further and three years further and so on so I think maybe that's the, the road he went down and saw okay maybe I can do this but then like we say in reality when you start um, extracting it out and originally I think he maybe planned that because the children were much more not that they're any less of main characters now but I mean when we first had this the trilogy idea that we've all seen in the original outline there were just less adults not so much that the children are any less important, but there were less adults to, to think about. And now there's hundreds and it, it just doesn't work for what is really three to four characters. So if you have Bran, Iron, and Sansa, and then maybe count Danny and John as well as aging up, and that's about it. It's not, it's not worth it. In the end. Mm, yeah. Well said. Um, Lady Gwynn, let's turn it over to you. What are, you uh, what are your thoughts on the five-year gap and specific or other <clears throat> questions that you may uh, think about it? I, I wanted to first comment because you're, you're talking about Sansa Joe, um, that George actually, uh, when, when we get to Feast, there's actually a commentary on the five-year gap 
Yes. Um, in a sense, a chapter where uh, Littlefinger says, you know, I had hoped for five years <laughs> to allow some of Mine these fruits to ripen. Um, meta, so meta. <laughs> here we are, you know. So, and some of those fruits that he had hoped to ripen, um, I think the, the primary one is what to do about the fact that Sansa is still married to Tyrion. Mm. Um, so, you know, he's got this whole plot where he's going to marry Sansa to Harry, to Harry Harding. Um, but, you know, what are you supposed to do about Tyrion? And, you know, well, thoughts about that would be completely off topic. But he really, I have some of George words, George's words here in, in front of me. And I think he really felt when he started writing Feast that this was going to work for people like Arya and Bran, people who are on that uh, kind of very predictable mentoring arc. I think it would have even worked for Sansa, although I, I, get, I hear your objections, Joe, loud and clear. Um, but definitely I see those three as all on kind of parallel arcs and I think it would have worked just fine for them. But then it's the expansion of the cast of characters and the storylines becoming so complicated. He says it, it didn't work for people like Cersei and John. And what he says specifically about Cersei, what he found was it was kind of coming together like this. Yeah, five years, six different guys have served as the hand. And then there was a conspiracy four years ago. And then some other thing happened three years ago. And it's all <laughs> going to be presented in flashbacks. And the only other alternative is that nothing happened. That doesn't sound doesn't really good. Work yeah. either. And, you know... John Snow is kind of even worse because, you know, like Dina was saying, I think maybe in the stream that wasn't um, (laughs) about the others, you know, John Snow has been elected Lord Commander and the others are just kind of like, we're coming, (laughs) not for five years. We're going to just stand right here or we're going to walk really slow like we did in the show. To them, five years is like five minutes. So, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Planning this for 8,000 We're going to zigzag. (laughs) It'll just take us that much longer. We'll just go across the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and there's like little kids, like the babies. We talked about that a little bit in the stream that wasn't, yeah. and and Maester Aemon would be like 107, and uh, <laughs> it's just a lot. So, um, Nina, what do you think about this whole five year gap business? No, and exactly to what Lady Gwen was saying, and and what I said in the stream that never was. Um, <laughs> the the others can't the, like the Storm of Swords is the book where we see the others at their most on page active. They are actively attacking people. Yes. They are actively trying to get things. It doesn't really make a lot of sense if then you take the next book and. Yeah, well, we haven't really heard from the others in five years. I guess they took a smoke break or something, but now they're back and they're angry. So, you know, that doesn't really make any sense. The other thing, and this is kind of more of a personal level for me, is I I have this headcanon, and this is not really based on anything, but I just kind of believe it. I have a feeling that one of the major sort of losers from the fighter gap being scrapped is House Dane. Mm. Because we get a lot of Dane set up in A Storm of Swords. We meet Edric Dane. We hear about how there was this connection between Ashara and Ned at the tourney. We hear about the tourney. There seems like we're going to learn a lot. And Edric is, I think, 12 in, in A Storm of Swords. So five years, he's 17. That makes sense. He'd be old enough to be a knight, to be sort of the morning, to hold dawn. 
but then the five-year gap doesn't happen. So I'm sort of the same place that he was and we really don't hear about the Danes. So, and actually, I think I saw a comment on this and I apologize. I don't remember who it was in the, in the comments, but someone mentioned, would we have ever gotten Darkstar? And to me, I don't think so. I mm-hmm. think Darkstar was explicitly created to be sort of this backdoor pilot of, here's the stuff I needed to tell you about the Danes that I was going to tell you via Edric, but then that sort of went nowhere. <laughs> I totally agree with the Darkstar point. Point. And it's interesting, though, that he's, and we'll talk about Darkstar more in Feast, but just f- for a, a brief overview, yeah, like he's the right age. He's not 17 or something, but there's no mention of High Hermitage or any of that, the Cadet Dane branch. And why would he need to make this, why would he need a retrofit like a, a, a house? Unless the character has to be Dane, unless it's important for them to have that particular heritage. Because he, why not just make him Gerald Ironwood or Gerald Uller or, you know, you could just use another Dornish house. It's for, but it's, it seems like it's important for him to be Dane. So that, that, I think that's really important. So I think you're right, Nina. And I think he carried that over. But it's interesting that he he's using a character with a much different personality. Like Edric is set up to be this good kid, right? Like he's like noble and friendly and a little humble, just, and, but a lord. And Darkstar is like jealous and, and cruel and it's a very different dude. <laughs> Uh, last thought on the five-year gap. Ashea did a panel at Con of Thrones with Joanna Lannister, Bookshelf yes. Stud, and Joe Magician on the five-year gap. A lot of very knowledgeable people with takes on that. And we and that panel is up on our channel. Okay, so let's move on to characters that really stood out to you on reread. Of course, we've all of us here have read the books a few times, more than a few probably. But this is probably a more of a unique reread. Uh, at least it is for me because of the TV show and fire and blood, which is more things to think about. Plus just every year that goes by, we process things a little differently and the knowledge of that we have becomes even more like a part of us. And, and we were more familiar with, with the things we know looking for different things on a reread is always fun. But I think this is, this stands out a little bit because of there's, there's so much more new information. I'll save mine for last Lady Gwen, let's start with you. I see that you've mm-hmm. selected a character that uh, so many people are particularly fond of, but you mm-hmm. you noticed some new things about this guy. Um, I did. It's it's Sam Tarley, and I gotta say, it's mainly a factor of the fact that I have studied him less. I mean, if you take all the other um, point of view characters, um, we've I've studied them to greater or lesser extents. Sam just this go around, I reread all of his chapters and really was struck by how much um, is in them, how, how much kind of build up backstory or, or I guess more build up for future plot points, you know, Obsidian and How to Kill Another, uh, Baby Swap uh, comparisons, which we'll talk about later maybe. But it, he, you see so much through him um, that we tend to forget things that you might have thought that you were that we saw through John's eyes actually yeah. turned out to have come to us through from Sam. And I mentioned that even there were a couple things that I thought came from Bran and turned out to have actually been in a Sam point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so because he does have that intersection, so I mean he's kind of all over the place, and it, it's setting him up like so many others um, 
for you know where he goes in uh, Feast for Crows. So. It, it makes a lot of sense that we get a lot of information for him. He's the, the stu- studious guy. Mm-hmm. He's reading the books, even though we get yep. very little directly from those books. Something we all are hoping for <laughs> in the Winds mm-hmm. of Winter that he spends. Just give us one like library <laughs> chapter where Sam is just browsing books. We'll just yeah, just a gratuitous citadel browsing <laughs> scene. We'll we'll pay extra. George. <laughs> Even the fact that they just mention all those books. And so it sort of sticks in our mind. We're like, oh, so when that one's mentioned again. Yes. Or if know, that author like the Jade, is When they again. say the Jade Compendium again, maybe we should pay attention. Yeah. It's now, you know, like the third time it's been mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Eyes, eyebrows go up when Jade Compendium gets mentioned. Yeah. Like, yeah. whoa, whoa, what do we, do we get like three, we get a paragraph from that? Give us something. Um, <laughs> so Joe, what about you? Who was your standout this time? Maybe, especially if it was different than, than what you were expecting. Yeah, that, that's kind of the tough part of this question because it already has major plot lines for people who are really my favorite car- characters. Catelyn's my favorite, so it's obviously a very Catelyn-focused book. Danny and John, the second half of their arcs. But in terms of kind of uh, seeing people differently or, or things jumping out more at me, I'd have to say probably uh, Jamie this time, this time around, specifically mm. after he loses his hand, and especially when he comes back to um, to King's Landing as well. I really enjoy reading him um, develop these new skills that he's never had to bother with before in terms of being the Lord Commander, dealing with Loras especially, and like his little kind of teacher moment of letting Loras um, interrogate Brienne and come to his own conclusion rather than just kind of beating it into him. Because if Jamie comes back with his right hand, that probably all goes very differently. He probably just tries to duel Loris or something like that. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I really like this seeing him, even forgetting his kind of like redemption arc type thing, but just him on his own in a vacuum, just learn these different skills and learn to have this life without this major skill that has really been his foundation. Um, I've spoken a lot, especially about John as well. I keep having these kind of um, comparing the nightly aspects of these people to like athletes in our world and uh, getting older. So Jamie is obviously a really good comparison for that, for injury and getting older, not doing what he used to. So I don't know if I may be uh, projecting onto Jamie a little bit because I grew up playing high level basketball and now I'm older and I can't jump as high. It's not quite as bad (laughs) as as losing my right hand, but I see some of that um, Jamie of having to learn these new skills and just kind of grow up a bit where, where he obviously would not have done that at all without his, um, without his loss of his hand. And I also think it really shows off to him what a bad influence Cersei is in terms of like the closer, he, when he's coming back to King's Landing, the closer he gets, the meaner he becomes, even though he starts off quite mean with Brienne. Then they hit a nice patch. Then he gets ni- near Cersei, becomes mean again for a second, and then he actually meets Cersei again and thinks, oh no, actually, <laughs> you're not as nice as I remember. And uh, yeah, kind of, things kind of roll from there. And uh, just for a, um, a shower as well as someone else that, jumped out to me. I know you're a brand man, Aziz. And <laughs> I've never been a brand man. I've never really enjoyed his his chapters that much. But this Stormbrand is my favorite brand. Stormbrand. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a, a rough cereal to eat Stormbrand. Um, so, by the way, Joe, yeah, just also like with your parallel to basketball and Jamie, um, I was dis- I was disappointed that you gave away that Valyrian steel basketball to your friend instead of keeping it. I meant the gift to be sincere, but you thought it was mocking and <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> They're really hard to shoot. They're really hard. Uh, so Nina, let's hear from you on this character standout bit. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, to to echo this point, there's a lot of really, really, really great arcs in A Storm of Swords, and I think a lot of them are really good. Um, One thing that really stood out to me was Daenerys. You know, Daenerys' arc in A Storm of Swords, I always liked it, but I think something that I've been considering lately is I don't think that it is coincidental that the book where we see, to go to my point earlier, the book where we see the others at their most on-page active, they are actively trying to hunt and kill people Mm -hmm. is the book where we see Daenerys affirmatively taking up this position of, I am the breaker of chains. I am going to destroy slavery where I see it. I am going to, to free enslaved people. I don't think that's coincidental. I think that is setting up where Daenerys is going in the future, that grounding her in this, in this uh, foundation of, I am the one who who destroys slavery, who sees it for the evil it is and takes it down, prepares her beautifully for fighting the others who really are these eldritch slavers who want to destroy everything we know of as life. Yeah, that's really well said. Also, I think it applies really well to what we, a question that we'll be asking later is right now, just in the sense that we were debating what we're not debating, but trying to extrapolate and explain what sacrifice means and all the various forms of what that is. We're going to be getting into the vagaries of what is slavery. There's literal slavery, but then there's like effective slavery, which one could say the peasants of Westeros are somewhat living under effective slavery. It's not as bad as true slavery, but it's not much better. And just the semantics of that might be something that Danny is like, the line gets blurred. It's like, nah, this is only slightly better and she's not going to accept things like thraldom or serfdom as really much better than slavery. So I think that might be something, that concept that we, that we, that gets brought up. Um, and that speaks to my own standout chapters as well. Cause Danny was, was one I was particularly keen on uh, to key in on and, and look for clues. And I think I, I did find some, there were a lot of new thoughts on Danny and, and trying to focus on her state of mind. And to me, her drifting more towards prophecy and destiny and less away from humanity because humans are so fallible and distrustworthy and corrupt. And uh, everywhere she goes, she sees evidence of this. And uh, I could see why someone might just get fed up with it or see that, uh, decide that it needs to all be torn down. And that's really compelling and interesting to me. But also, also, uh, I, I really look differently at John. I caught a lot of new symbolism that I didn't see before. The scene where a Maester Eamon is plunging a hot dagger into him while healing him, really, while he's crying about betraying a grit, really. Ooh, that's, that's some Nissa Nissa Azor High vibes, mm-hmm. which uh, we're still kind of not sure whether that'll happen or not, but it sure, sure was an interesting scene as well as um, how much a grit reflects, uh, echoes Daenerys. Um, and how much Stannis echoes Daenerys? That's always been a thing, but I, I never looked at it quite as closely as I did this time. And that's a big deal because it also helps you get, it also shows you where Melisandre's mistakes are coming. Like she's seeing Danny, but, see, but thinking it's Stannis. Uh, so that just fits so well. Um, I don't really know where the middle of the episode is anymore because of how we started. Time space have no meaning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it anyway? Yeah. Is it still Sunday? Is it Tuesday yet? I don't even know. Is it 2020? <laughs> so thank you to our Blood Rider patrons, including Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt, Koakoi called Sun Piercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. 
Also, thanks to our queens of love and beauty. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from Beyond the Wall. And a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien, and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Also want to shout out our Northern champions. Every once in a while, we do these patron shout outs and we have three different rotating middle episode shout outs, the Northern champions, the Sellsword captains, and the Ironborn captains. So today, let's do the Northern champions. Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Lady Ar- Ardras, Mother of Wolves, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Claymore Manticore, Sir Brian the Return, Knight of the Last House, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Song, Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, War- Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone, Lady Cat Jones of the Big Pond, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade, Ginger's Honor, Jake Snow, aka Jacob Ice Eyes, the Bastard of the Last River, Lord Darren of House Rambler, Motto, The Last Hunt is Ceaseless, Lady Bobby of House Mitchell, Gandalf the White, that's not the color, but the raised dead. Lord of House Seamorn. Sherry of Skane, last of the long night archaeologists and wielder of the untested hypothesis. A Valyrian steel trowel with dragon bone handle. Now that is a cool device <laughs> right there, artifact. And Lady Nicole of House Anime, the small can be powerful, captain of Sweet Camellia. All right, let's start with um, Sansa. I want to start with Sansa because uh, she's, well, I don't really have a particular reason of starting with Sansa. I just like Sansa and we'll start with Sansa arbitrarily. (laughs) You don't need a reason. Uh, Right, I mean, you got to start somewhere and why not Sansa? I mean, (laughs) she's, it's interesting to me how she goes from wanting to be anywhere but home to realizing that home has always been better. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute. Why did I ever want to? Yeah. And also just some high points. And then I turn it over to each of each of you to uh, speak to Sansa's arc in a storm of swords. He, she still falls for a few of Littlefinger's lies because hell he's lying with every other word and he's really good at lying. But importantly, she figures out the ones that, that she, some of the ones that she can't figure out, by knowing the truth, she understands intuitively. For example, she likens his attitude and approach to her and the look in his eye to Marillion's. And Marillion was very, was just straight up coming to rape her. So she's sensing a lot of these things that Littlefinger is hiding. They're not really that hidden to a reader, to an adult reader, but we always have to keep in mind that she is 13. I mean, she's supposed to be naive. (laughs) So like everyone's supposed to be pretty naive when they're 13. So it's interesting to see which things she's figuring out. Yet a few things, Littlefinger is still getting past her. Like, for example, she just, she still believes that Littlefinger slept with Catelyn and that's not the case at all. Um, But ultimately, I think the big point here with Sansa Littlefinger is that Littlefinger is just talking on and on about you always got to clean up the loose ends. You always got to don't want sticky hands, kill anyone who knows your secrets. But here he is telling Sansa all his secrets and he's not going to kill her. There's no way he kills her. She's like this. She's not safe in terms of being with him, but she's safe from murder, I think, uh, from him. But she's, you know, while even while being imperiled in many other creepy ways. Let's start. uh, We'll start with Joe this time. 
certainly you can respond to any of the points I made, but just in general, talk about Sansa's arc throughout A Storm of Swords and what it meant to you this time and uh, compared to other, the other books. Yeah, I love rereading Sansa. She's definitely one of those characters that I, you just ha- you have to appreciate more and more every time you read her. And it, she's a bit like Aya in that um, more than just having one specific art within this book, it's kind of a, a two-parter. This is very much the second part of her clash arc because she's escaping from King's Landing finally and I kind of see um, I can kind of pick out three main points for um, kind of like beginning middle and end and the thing that stuck out to me at the beginning is actually George kind of takes some experiments like writing wise with her chapters like she has a chapter where she doesn't move but she's just having this dress made for her and she, it's basically all flashback almost to um, thinking about Marjorie and what she's been up to mm. and she's actually allowed to kind of have like a happy chapter apart from she's a little bit worried about what this dress is but in general uh, it's, ba- it's definitely the happiest we ever see her in King's Landing so that's obviously very very different to what we normally get for her at King's Landing so <laughs> yeah. it's a weird uh, stick up there the thing that sticks out to me from the beginning is when um, I can't remember if it's their wedding or the purple wedding but Tyrion it's in Tyrion's chapter and she's talking to Kevin and Lancel and is making them like beam with happiness, even though Lancel's like on his last legs. And Tyrion has some kind of thought of like, oh, she would be really, she's really good at this. And it sticks out to me because like, she's really good at this when she's a prisoner and she doesn't want to be there. She doesn't mean any of it. Like, imagine how good she will be when she's on the home turf and has people around her and a support network and stuff. So that's a, a really nice snippet of, of what's to come and um, just some seeds. But from the end, in that really powerful chapter in the Eyrie and her building Winterfell, this is obviously a major, major chapter for her overall arc. It's kind of bittersweet because they have that, she builds this lovely castle, first of all, really beautiful writing. Then Peter Bayless comes and corrupts it all and makes it a terrible, terrible chapter. But then after <laughs> that, like you say, she, she has this moment where she's really close to putting her foot down and says, no, that's it, I'm, I'm saying I'm leaving, I'm not having any of this. She's drawn her strength from the snow from Winterfell. And really crucially, she thinks, I want to be away from Lysa. I want to be away from Rillian. And she thinks, I want to be away from Peter. That She knows that she doesn't want to be near him. But then given what happens and this really traumatic event where she nearly dies, she ends up latching up onto him because there's no other choice. So that's a really bittersweet. We can nearly see her push her way out, but uh, circumstances uh, trap her for a bit more, which again, I'm glad that doesn't trap her for another five years. Or so <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and unfortunately, Sansa brings us back to uh, Littlefinger and, yeah, well, I won't go on about him because I'll, I'll take up everyone else's talking time, but I just, <laughs> I just hate him so much. And, uh, she brings him back to us, so I'm not happy about Sansa Dark in that respect. So, um, yeah, so great sh- great takes there, Joe. Let me turn it over to Nina and add one little bit here. I remember you and I talking about this last chapter of hers and maybe how it might reflect some of what we saw in the show a little bit um, because that's certainly a new thing for us is considering we got at least an example of how Littlefinger might end in the books, given what the show showed us. And now, of course, it could be different, but it feels like it, at least from a high point, that's not an unreasonable possibility. And that's a, a dot we weren't fully able to connect from, from before this, this reread. So was that, a, was that sort of a change for you? Or is this kind of what you saw coming? Or, or just tell us. Well, so, you know, with me, with Sansa, I, I really do love Sansa. I really do. You know, she's, she's a great POV. And I think Storm of Swords is a really great POV for her. It's really the story of Sansa who is 
outwardly performing as she needs to survive. But in her heart, she is very much focused on her family and on getting getting home and and connecting with home. And the more the story goes on, it's focusing on what what can I do to get home? You know, what what is driving her in accepting at the end of A Clash of Kings, this whole mission with Dantos is she thinks this represents home. And that's that's what's driving her. She really wants to get home. So Santa will do whatever she has to do in order to get that. So, and Sansa, Sansa is also interesting because Sansa, with, with respect to the Littlefinger setup, Littlefinger reveals a lot to her and that's kind of necessary on a meta level because we as readers need to have these sorts of things explained. But it's also setting up the idea that Littlefinger will tell Sansa anything because he doesn't think that Sansa is a threat because he thinks that he can tell Sansa anything. <laughs> That's very important because <laughs> the day will come where he will tell Sansa or he will reveal something to Sansa and Sansa Sansa will push back because what is motivating Sansa and it's so beautifully put in that last chapter, her strength is in Winterfell. She needs to get back to Winterfell to be there. Yeah. And there's so many, and there's other things, like you said, there's like secrets that he's maybe dropped that he shouldn't, plus just things he's done in the past that might come back to haunt him. The dagger maybe could come back to haunt him. That's certainly what the show gave us. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen in the books, but that's an option. Another one that's not in the show, maybe Lady Gwen, you could speak to this one briefly if you want to, is Jane Poole. Certainly showing up there and finding her and finding what happened to her and realizing that Littlefinger is responsible. Well, Mm -hmm. how is she supposed to take that lying down? I mean, damn, that was her friend. Yeah. Now, how she's going to find that out is is an interesting because Jane is... Jane has left yeah. and <laughs> gone. We don't know where she's going to go, but we we kind of, you know, she's either going to end up at the wall. Well, that's that's the goal. Uh, we think that she might end up in in Bravos from there. Yeah. As we talked about that a lot in our podcast, and um, that could potentially mean an intersection with Arya, which could be how that sort of all triangulates back together with Sansa. And Arya kind of comparing notes about things. Won't be able to make fun it, of Arya's face anymore, will she? Hmm, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Low blow. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you see Littlefinger, like you guys have all said it, he's got a giant Sansa-sized blind spot <laughs> in, in, his, in his, all of his plans. He just does not seem to think that there's any possibility that she might ever do something to, you know, when he talks about pawns that have minds of their own and he's, he's, you know, teaching her, uh, this is, this is how you play the game, Sansa, but you got to watch out for those pawns. I mean, it doesn't never dawn on him that she's <laughs> going to be one of those people, apparently. So, you know, her arc here is, I've written, you know, if you want to look at the whole of the book, she's, her arc goes from periods of sort of captivity, like a, a princess in a tower kind of thing where she's stagnating and she's just kind of not much is happening to a little bit of release, which is how Storm of Swords began because she was able to come out, socialize and be involved in all these kind of plots again. And she's whisked off back to the Vale, and she thinks she's going home. And then lo and behold, no, she's not going home. She's going to get <laughs> nope. stuck in yet another tower or another cage at the Erie uh, until um, 
now uh, after one more book of that, then we finally get to see her back out of her period of stagnation and uh, getting involved in plotting again once once we get to the winds of winter. In this way, Sons is a lot like Persephone, which, you know, that's that's a whole other discussion. But yeah. it's, this kind of, <laughs> it's this kind of like cycle. And it's very it's very clear to me in A Storm of Swords that that's what's happening with her. Right on. Well said. Uh, so let's move on to, let's see, let's move on to Tyrion, um, given their brief connection, uh, decent spot to segue over. So Tyrion also is very much in one place, the whole uh, book. He's in King's Landing, like a few other, like he was basically all of the last book until right at the end where he leaves. Now, this one's very different. To me, on a very high level, it's it's similar to Catelyn in that he's out in the world in the first book. Second book, he's very much involved in the politics and intrigue and, and trying to maneuver things. And by the third, he's kind of not included in anything anymore. And he's pretty miserable because of it. And he feels lonely and isolated. And whereas his arc ends with him breaking free from his family and killing his father and Shay, Catelyn's is more of a, well, she dies. That's uh, so they have very different endings, but in terms of how they're pushed aside from being involved in the action. And so their stories become a lot more internal. That's a big, uh, pretty big deal. Let's start uh, here with Nina. Why don't you go talk to us a little bit about Tyrion? And I know we can, we can certainly break a, touch on the mo- probably the most contentious topic of the reread, which is his relationship to Shay. But how that wraps into his other relationships is really, is really important too, because obviously it's hard to zoom in on any one of Tyrion's relationships and not talk about of, of the other ones because he's only got a few relationships that matter in his entire life. And they all very much bleed into each other. His, really, his feelings about Taisha are very much connected to his feelings about Shay and his feelings about his family are all intertwined. So I would love to hear what you have to say about Tyrion as a whole uh, from this book. And like I said, Nina, we'll start with you. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned kind of a, a geographical comparison to, to Catelyn, but there's sort of a a little bit of a, I don't know if thematic is the right word, comparison with Catelyn in the sense that these are both arcs where the character is is sort of doomed from the start. Mm. <laughs> it's just yeah. sort of this ticking time bomb waiting for things to go down because Tyrion, you, you know, Tywin is back. And it's not that Tywin coming back is dooming Tyrion just because of that, but because Tyrion cannot give up this relationship with Shay. There are two things that cannot exist, coexist. Tywin, Tywin being in charge and Tyrion having this relationship with Shay, it's set up in the very first chapter. This is something that's going to end poorly for both of you. <laughs> yeah. But Tyrion can't give it up. And this is this is kind of what his whole story in Partners from Swords is focused on is he is obsessed with this idea that he's in love with Shay and Shay is in love with him. He doesn't want to lose that because he has this idea of, well, no one's ever loved me, but now I've got someone who loves me. I can't, I can't let that go. That's, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) On either level, (laughs) Shay doesn't love you. And there are people who genuinely love you, but it's, it's sort of this, it's very sad to read on reread because you know, things are just going to get worse and worse for him. And when he finally gets to this trial, they're taking, I think I made this point in the reread, they don't even have to invent that much evidence. They just have to selectively present the facts and it makes Tyrion look really bad because there's a lot that has been set up that he says, you know, how do I make all these enemies? 
it's not that hard to selectively present facts to say, look, you look like a monster here, Tyrion. And it's just, it's a very hard, Tyrion is, is a very hard one for me to read on read read for the same reason as Kat, because they are both just, hurtling toward doom yeah that's Tyrion a little bit better because he doesn't die but. <laughs> yeah his is more of a descent into into darkness where it says stoneheart is more of a metaphor is a more literal darkness <laughs> undead darkness that's a that's a great way to put it um lady gwen what about you what's your thoughts on Tyrion here well just taking off uh, what nina was just saying like about <laughs> presenting the facts and I was struck, you know, I just reviewed his, his first chapter starts out with uh, him talking to Varys and they're discussing how Purcell got reinstated. And, you know, immediately you're like, Oh, this, this is not going to end well for you, Tyrion. Maybe could have not done what you did to Purcell or maybe I I don't even know how that could have change differently but we know that's going to work out very badly for him because all the Pycelle is going to come and give testimony against him vis-a-vis poisons and half of it's going to be made up but some of it's going to be true it is like you know selective selective truth there just enough to make him look really bad yeah yeah and he um I thought I forget what I was going to say so I had something <laughs> Well, well if you if you think of it, we'll come back to you. But uh, yeah, just, I'll raise my hand. There's, like in a <laughs> there's just there's just so many things that Tyrion is. Even if we completely eliminate anything that he's done to himself or or screwed up on his own, there's so many things that have wronged him that he has nothing to do with. For example, we've talked about the trial. He didn't really have anything to do with that, uh, as far as other than being a person that's a, a an excellent scapegoat, which most of which he doesn't have control over other than being able to recognize it. And the same goes for uh, Tywin's hypocrisy. That's something that I really tried to focus on more of this time. It's something we've all been kind of aware of, but really trying to get at it and really focus on it. There's just so much. It's it's mind-blowing. But it's something that if you were really Tyrion, like a real person, you would be hyper-focused on your father's hypocrisy because it would be because it affects you so directly and deeply. So I was really trying to feel that and try to get put myself in his shoes as much as possible. And it's like two trials by combat. His father just constantly not taking the opportunity to give him credit where credit's due. Not just the things he does against him, but the things he doesn't do. It just does, does really stood out uh, to me. Joe, what about you? What are your takes on Tyrion this time through? Oh, I love what Nina said about the, the comparison to Catelyn, especially if we're looking at in terms of vengeance, because here's, here's a woman who, who was wronged in the worst way and supposedly robbed of her vengeance and then comes back to supposedly get it. And on the other side, we have Tyrion who does gain his ultimate act of vengeance, but look what it does to him. So what can we really expect for Catelyn? Um, overall for Tyrion, um, what really stuck out to me this time is how he, and it's something that kind of stretches across all, all POVs really, is that all the, the doers from the previous book kind of become observers in this and they get very kind of swept along in the, in the plot. Mm. Uh, again, with Catelyn, like, it's a tragic arc. Things just happen now. They're just pulling around. Um, John, when it, it works in the reverse where the observe, more observer characters before, the younger ones especially, are now doing their own things, especially Danny and John, where they were pushed around by the Dothraki or they were just on the, along for the ride on the ranging. And now they're actually in command of the wall. Now they're actually in command of an army. So we've kind of seen everything switch. And again, because this is the line in the sand where it's supposed to be the flip of the arc. So that makes sense. Uh, you can say it was with Sam, you can say it with Davos, and I think Tyrion, he was like 
Mr. Do Something in Clash of Kings. He was making everything happen. He had his finger on all the buttons. But now he really, okay, yeah, he's master of coin, but how much should we really get of him doing that? Not a lot. It's really him just falling along, swirling down the drain type thing. And it's a really um, emotional read, especially when you get to the end. And if you'd asked me before this reread what my least favorite part of this book was, I probably would have said Tyrion and Shay because I always thought that's just too much of it. And, okay, I know what's going to happen. Let's move on. But firstly, it's not as much as I thought. It wasn't nearly as much as I remembered. But it really just sticks out to me again about what Nina said. It's like Tyrion knows his vice. He knows his addiction. But like that's the point. He knows it, but he's still not going to give it up because it's an addiction. Knowing it isn't the 100% of the beast type thing. So he knows what he's got to do. It's not going to happen. That's obviously uh, counteracts the fact that he's like the smart guy, but ultimately isn't any smarter than anyone else emotionally. And then when you get to this ending, this really, really emotional ending, where you find out all this stuff about his past, violence, hypocrisy, but I think it's also about... Um, theft as well mm. uh, I think it's like uh, Terry Pratchett said that every crime is a form of theft and Tywin's was this theft of a whole life Tyrion could have had not only if he'd just been left with Tysha that's bad enough but if he'd been allowed to believe that Tysha was who she was and that he isn't this unlovable person that's doomed for to be with no one so to find that out and especially we get it just a few chapters before Lysa confirms everything with Hosta, where she's also had a theft of her life or could have been with her child with Peter that her father took first. So I think the chapter sequencing there, I think they're three chapters apart, really, really stuck out to me this time. And and yeah, like like both of you said, just emotional knowing what's going to happen. You can see it right from the beginning and all these loose ends are going to come back and bite you. Like Lady Gwen said, like it's you were high, but you weren't smart enough while you were high. And now that you're down low, they're going to kick you. So that, I remember okay, a good thing I was going to say, oh, good. Which, <laughs> which was just a very tiny point related to that. And it was, I was going to tie them both together because also in the very first chapter, he's talking to Varys about getting rid of Shay. <laughs> yes. So um, in the first three pages of Tyrion's arc, we're just sitting there thinking, these are the things that you should be doing. Mm. <laughs> none, none of this is going to work out. And, and the day of the purple wedding, he decides, that's it. He's like, the morning of the purple wedding, he meets Shay down in those dragon skulls, sleeps with her and decides yep. he's going to marry her to Talad the Tall. And then <laughs> that obviously can never happen because that's the day of the purple wedding and he has to flee from there. So, or not flee, but mm-hmm. get captured rather. And this is a really good segue to his brother because especially considering the concept of a relationship you know is wrong, but you kind of go back to anyway. And you you logically understand <laughs> that it's going to work, but it has all these contradictions. So obviously Jamie and Cersei is what I'm talking about. And for a great example of this is Jamie saying... I don't want to. I don't want any of my Kingsguard brothers to find out we're sleeping together. But I would like you to tell the whole world we're sleeping together, and let's get married. Like, wait, what? <laughs> How do those two things fit together? Those are completely contradictory, Jamie. <laughs> but anyway, cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So sure. it, it, that is, I think maybe the Shay Tyrion story is also serves as a somewhat of a mirror to Jamie and Cersei, which is pretty interesting because obviously the characters are much different. It's the relationship that has something in common. Obviously, Tysha and, and Cersei are not terribly similar at all, nor uh, Jamie and Tyrion are perhaps a little more, uh, have a little more in common, but still, this is a pretty strong one. So let's, uh, let's start this time with uh, Nina and let's talk about Jamie for a minute. Yeah, so Jamie, you know, Jamie's a, a 
super obviously interesting character in this book because he's he comes kind of out of nowhere to become a POV and then sort of <laughs> delves into this sort of very interesting arc. I, I agree. I don't I don't consider it a redemption arc, but it's it's definitely an arc. The one thing that I think is is very interesting in, in terms of reread on Jamie is Jamie, Jamie is struggling with with the idea of of knighthood and, and living up to this idea of well they just make you swear so many vows that how are you ever supposed to how are you ever supposed to obey one without b- breaking the other and what what Bertha Martin does so brilliantly with Jamie is he puts with him the, the beau ideal of, of knighthood someone who is not a not a formal knight but is someone who devotes herself completely to the ideals of knighthood someone who will give up he he is giving up everything to to be the, the the sort of ideal knight and that's forcing Jamie to look and say well these people do exist you you can actually do this and i think i mentioned this on the on the on the reread chapter but kind of his last chapter he's sort of when he gives Brienne oathkeeper he's sort of outsourcing to 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 a little bit of an extent he's outsourcing his own honor because he's thinking no, I can't do this. I I can't go on this quest. I can't. I have duties here, both familial and and with the king's guard. But here's someone who can. I do actually believe now. Here is someone who can, who can give up everything and can go after Sansa. And it's not on an ironic level. It's not <laughs> oh, because I you know I just think it'd be funny if I did this. <laughs> here's someone who can actually who can actually take on this very nightly quest because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, right on. Well said. Uh, Joe, what do you think about uh, Jamie in this book? You said he was uh, one of the ones that stood out to you most on reread. Yeah, that's right. I'll try not to repeat myself so much. Um, yeah, he really, he really does stick out. A, a bit like Nina said, I was, uh, I'm a bit obsessed with like the meta of choosing who gets to be a POV and when you introduce them. So it's really interesting that we we got Jamie in the first place because firstly, he'd barely been around for Clash. He'd just been sat in a dungeon and really, the last time the reader saw him was when he was attacking Ned in the rain, and he was very Disney villainish with his big flop of hair and everything else. <laughs> so to go from that to, okay, now I'm going to present this really detailed, layered person to you and convince you to, if not like them, then at least be interested in them, is a, a big play from George, and obviously it worked out. Um, I spoke a bit about his uh, like second half of the book after, so I'll talk now about the first half, where we get this kind of slow slow reveal of the airy story that like you said in the notes disease. And I think that's really important because he's really the only POV we ever get of someone who was in the mix mm. of that whole saga mm. other than Ned. And obviously Ned's not opening up that kind of worms for us to, uh, <laughs> to talk about. Uh, we kind of get John Collington, but he's got out there by then anyway. So for in terms of modern Westerosi history, Jamie's like our source. So it's really important we get that whole viewpoint of it, not just from Jamie's actual viewpoint of he knows all these secrets, but just that we get to see it anyway, because obviously it's a massive, massive setup for later on. And he has all these thoughts about breaking these oaths and all these bad things that he's done and that Aries thing. And it's really surprising to me that even with all that guilt, he never ever mentions the Taisha thing right, right until the end. So I think it's clear what he's really the most guilty about because he won't even talk about it to himself. Now, when you go back and you can you can see that he does kind of hint at it a few times, but he never says it outright like, oh, I really shouldn't have told Tyrion that lie. But when it becomes, uh, when it basically comes to the 11th hour and he knows I'm probably never going to see Tyrion again and he's had all these uh, events of Brienne and ways he's trying to be better. He knows he has to get this off his chest or his He's never going to. This is his last chance. And this is just after his last chance. It's really interesting that we get a big Jamie moment after his 
uh, HP OBX technically closes. So when he's sitting and looking at that white book, the Aries thing is already in there, but there's this big, big blots that would be in there that he hasn't dealt with yet. So he has to get that off his chest before the opportunity goes. And I really like that aspect. And obviously, it doesn't go very well, but that sets up uh, <laughs> his feast, but which is probably one of my top three parts of Feast as well. So I really like the setup for that. Yeah, he just doesn't process, he doesn't understand what the the, the, the true meaning of the Taisha reveal is. He doesn't understand the whole no. unlovability of Tyrion angle there. Lady Gwen, what's your take on Jamie? At the end of Clash, Cat frees Jamie. Like you said, he'd spent all of Clash just kind of languishing in, in a dungeon. And by in so doing, she imprisons herself. So they, they kind of flip-flop. Um, but then, and then Jamie goes off with Brienne and in that moment, and then tying it into the end of Jamie's arc in storm, we get a triangle between those three is established. Mm. The whole thing about so many vows, they make you swear and swear. Brienne swore vows to Kat. Kat swore vows to Brienne. This was in Clash. Then uh, when Kat freed Jamie, they, we find out that they swore vows to each other. You know, he made promises, she made promises about what was going to happen as a result of her freeing him. And then end of a storm of swords, you've got Jamie and Brienne swearing vows to each other because she's going off to, you know, to be his honor, to, you know, to find Sansa. She swears that she will do it much later, end of feast, into dance. What's going to happen? These three are going to come together on a collision course, and they have all these conflicting vows that Jamie talked about right at the beginning of um, Storm of Swords. And that's just going to be huge with what happens. What's the resolution for those, at least for Jamie and Brienne and probably Kat, Lady Stoneheart, uh, when we see them again in Winds of Winter? And that's actually the plot point that I'm the most excited about. Ooh, right on. Winter, so. <laughs> no sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just real quick on Brienne. Um, ideally, we'd be able to talk about a lot of the non-POV characters too, but we'll, we'll hold off on at least some of the ones who, are, who have their own POV in the next book because we'll have a chance to talk about them later. But yeah, I, liked, I just really like seeing how Brienne and Jamie adopted more of each other's beliefs. Like Brienne came around on the idea of, of split loyalties and why oaths can, can, can cross over each other. And she, she had never really had that happen to her, but she saw it happen in real time and, and understood how that could be a real challenge for someone who takes oaths seriously. Yeah. When your oaths conflict, what do you do? I mean, if you take oaths super, super to heart, then it's an enormous conundrum. And by the same token, Jamie starts to recover some of his youth, some of his youthly ideals of knighthood, the, the kind that Brienne is holding on to that she starts to wisen up a little bit on. Jamie becomes a little less cynical on some of his. And I really like just the, the way they come together. And I think one of a really poignant moment I find is, is Jamie, is Brienne saying that the white cloak looks good on him, which she's saying it's said to be complimentary in like a physical thing, but she's actually saying you do you have earned that. Like I do see you as worthy of it because before she was like, you're not worthy of that cloak and blah, blah, blah. And so him saying, she's saying her saying it looks good on him is, is very, very telling. And uh, I'm not even sure he fully got that. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about Cersei some other time, but one really important point that we tried to cover throughout Valerie Reedus is how she's seeing the beginning of the Valencar prophecy happen. And that's just an enormous bit of anxiety for her to deal with. So we'll, we'll talk about that as at the beginning of her arc, since we're, uh, as usual, we have more to say than we can possibly fit. 
<laughs> let's talk about Aria. We talked a little bit about her before, um, but let's let's zoom in on her a bit more. Let's start with uh, Lady Gin. We'll start with you this time. Arya goes all around the Riverlands. She has this kind of almost complete story where she's three books of mostly out in the wilderness. I mean, obviously at the, at the book one, she doesn't really get outside till the end. But even when she's at King's Landing, she's in the tunnels and doing all sorts of crazy stuff away from her family. So um, we, see, we see more and more of her wolf dreams. That's a big part of this book is, is her having a lot of wolf dreams. But of course, the her being an observer in general is a big part of this book that's going to change because in Bravos. Well, that less of Bravos is interesting, but it's got less of the main story wrapped up in it. So it's very focused on her rather than all these other things happening around her. So I think that's super interesting the way she her, her arc is changing, but also just looking back on this full Riverlands arc as it ends here. So please tell us what you think of Arya. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of Arya, I think that there's a lot to be said about Arya and Sandor's relationship, um, which evolves over the course of Storm of Swords. And, um, you know, she starts out in prison. Well, she starts out having just escaped being kind of imprisoned at Harren Hall. And she spends most of the Riverlands kind of traveling, kind of similar to, you know, what Brienne does in Feast for Crows. She's just wandering around the Riverlands. She and Jamie are the, you know, our point of view into everything that's happening in the Riverlands in the Storm of Swords. So in a way, they kind of mirror to each other. There's a lot of points where you see that mirroring, which I find very interesting. But then when she gets with with Sandor, this is when we start to see that theme of mercy really take hold in her arc because he starts teaching her about the gift of mercy. You know, the the word keeps coming up. Arguably, you could find some mercy in his trial by combat in the hollow hill. Mm -hmm. Um, So from there, um, it goes up to the point where I find it very interesting that she declines to give him the gift of mercy at the end. Almost like if you remember just before that, he's come off of her, he fell off her list. Mm -hmm. You know, she said, she said her prayer and and he wasn't on it. And she thought, Oh, I wonder why put him back in note to self. (laughs) (laughs) Reinstate Sander on the list. But then, you know, he, he wants that he wants her to give him the gift of mercy as he's taught her. And uh, she declines. And the way I see it is she's, uh, this is a very stark thing because she's at this point, she has judged him to be not worthy of death. Um, and you know, on the, on the surface of it, it's because she doesn't want to help him, but I think it's goes somewhat deeper than that, where she, obviously the fact that she's let him fall off the list, she actually does not, um, she's developed a much more nuanced view of who Sandra Clegane is. And she doesn't necessarily feel that it's her place to judge him, which then is going to feed right into some of the things she's learning at the house of black and white. So, Mm, yeah, well said. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. There's so much to do with th- these parallels and, and like judging and taking a life or giving mercy or denying mercy. And that, again, ties into this long-running justice versus vengeance theme. And there's a little bit of, of perhaps a little bit of vengeance in her letting him lie there. But also, that's somewhat contradicted by her taking him off his list or other way around, taking him off her list. (laughs) Um, Nina, what do you think about Arya in A Storm of Swords? Specifically to that last point, you know, and this is something that that has gone through a lot of Arya in in A Storm of Swords, is developing this idea of mercy as both 
gift and punishment. Mm. It is it is gift. Sandor teaches her that that, and she learns in the Brotherhood's about banners too. Is that a, a quick death is mercy, and that if you are suffering, a quick death is is the best thing you can give someone. But mercy is also is death is also punishment. Death is also for the people who have done you wrong. They they deserve to die. So, or the people who have you know broken these very fundamental things for Arya. They, they deserve to die. And that's something that she experiences very powerfully in, in the end at the crossroads that she sees these people who have very grievously wronged her and she helps kill them. And at the end, she can't give either to Sandor because she doesn't think he deserves a quick, the mercy of a quick death because, well, what she says to him is, you should have helped me save my mother. You should have gone back in there with me. That This is still something you did wrong to me. I'm not going to give you the gift of a quick death because you did wrong. But she's also understood that, well, he did rescue me, though. He did save me when, you know, no one else was saving yeah. her. So he doesn't deserve to die anymore either. So the best that she can do is just leave. The, the really sad thing in this kind of overarching on Arya's, Arya's Storm of Swords arc is desperately trying to get back to her family and coming to this conclusion at the end that no one wants her around. Mm. That she is so desperate to get to River Run. She desperately wants to get to her mother and to Rob. She's trying to get back, trying to get back. And even after the Red Wedding with Sandor, she thinks, okay, well, well, maybe, you know, am I going, am I going to my uncle, my, my great uncle in River Run? Am I going to my aunt in the Erie? No, I can't get to either of them. It's like every road is closed off to her and Sandor won't take her north. Where am I going to go? No one wants me. And this is where it's kind of a, the opposite of Sansa's arc where Sansa believes she can get home. It's just that people are stopping her doing that. <laughs> Arya, Arya doesn't see a path to get home. Mm. There's only one path ahead and and that's Bravos. Well said, yeah. Um, Joe, let's hear from you on Arya. I love both those points from Lady Gwen and Nina there. So a lot of great sandals stuff. So I'll leave him. Uh, I think I, I must have been asked what my favorite arc in a Storm of Swords is 10, 10 plus times and I'm the type that will give a different answer every single time but I know I've said I at least once <laughs> so this is it's a really major um, part of the book obviously she's got the most chapters I think the important thing I firstly didn't remember that she has that many chapters just going around with the Brotherhood to all these different aspects of like the the rebellion or the whatever you want to call it, this keeping alive, I guess, for the small folk. But I think it's important that she sees that after Clash because in Clash, she just saw suffering and just saw brutality and nothing good ever happened for the small folk. So now she does see that there are actually still people out there trying to do the right thing, fighting for the little guy. And even though she, she can't quite click that she has a part in that just yet because her age and whatever, she does eventually. And I think that speaks to her final... Uh, chapter in the inn at the crossroads. And this is another part I forgot that it, it's actually the inn with, with Masha Helm where Catelyn captured Tyrion, etc. And I checked that like three times because I thought, I do not remember that. That seems really <laughs> important. It's in, it's in the exact same place. So I already have this obsession with uh, Sansa and Aya both following in the physical footsteps of Catelyn. But this one specifically where, I mean, you can argue, there's arguments for all of it, but you can argue the war really kind of started there because Catelyn took Tyrion. I know a lot of people do argue that a bit too strongly, but it's a big it's a big part of why the war started and why all these small folk are suffering. So it's important to me that Aya goes back to that specific point and at least repays a, a part of the debt that her family and the, the 
and the nobility owe the small folk mm. because once she does this, it kind of opens up and it becomes uh, the like orphanage type thing with Genji and Willow, which is another thing I had to check like three times because I was like, is this all the same end? I thought there was a few more ends in there. <laughs> it, it is all the same. Yeah, one. there's just so, the two ends. There's that one and the end of the kneeling. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm asking. Asking. I'm sure it's the other one. <laughs> but, um, nope, no, nope. So I opens the door for a good thing to happen in the Riverlands. And it's difficult because obviously it's not Aya's fault. She didn't take Tyrion. She didn't start any war. Mm. But she is a part of the nobility, even though she's not specifically right now. She is a Stark. She is a half Tully. So she does owe something to these people for the games that the the high folk, the nobility play. So yeah, I really, really like that bit. And the other thing that really stuck out to me and I forgot is I think I said on our last review show at the end of Clash of Kings that uh, the, the parallels between Sansa and Aya kind of split at the end of Clash. And that was dead wrong. I completely take that back. There's loads more parallels between Aya and Sansa. <laughs> so uh, I'm still learning. <laughs> well, we all are. That's why we're still doing it. That's why we're still here, huh? Yeah, uh, really good takes, y'all. Those were some of the best takes of the whole episode. I think these Arya takes uh, were really great. Um, related to Arya as well, and some questions revolving around her with her mother. Um, we we covered some of this already in com- comparing her to Cat or comparing her to Tyrion and and the the difference the similarities and the the overarching themes of and, and their participation in the narrative. More specific question here about Stoneheart and Catelyn comes from Richard Tabor. She, he points out that Stoneheart and the, uh, should know that Arya is, is alive because of the Brotherhood Without Banners knows that she's alive. They were chasing Sandor and never did find him, but she, they have every reason to believe Arya is still alive. So how does that affect Stoneheart as a, as a revenant, as a being of revenge and just knowing that her daughter that she thought might be dead is actually alive? I hadn't, honestly, haven't given this a lot of consideration. So that's a really good question. It's something um, that really should have, I really should have thought about before. In fact, he asked me this question a couple of weeks ago and I misunderstood it and I happened to think about it again. So I thought it was a good time to bring it up here and get your takes. Uh, Lady Good, we'll start with you. What do you think about Stoneheart's knowledge of Arya? And if you want to expand on that to what yeah. would Stoneheart, what's Stoneheart going to do when she learns that if if she learns that, say, Bran and Rickon are alive, like how how does that affect her? Mm-hmm. I th- Stoneheart knows about Arya. Yeah. She just unequivocally, the King at the Crossroads is full of children mm. when Brienne gets there. And that's because the Brotherhood Without Banners have been under Lady Stoneheart's uh, leadership, have been going around the Riverlands collecting little orphans because they're looking for Arya. Uh, they ask Brienne mm. if she's ever seen, if she's, you know, if she's seen this girl. I mean, it's that is part of their um it's part of their mission now is to find aria because she knows that she's out there somewhere i think it it speaks to a little bit more nuance in lady stoneheart uh whereas you know we might think that she's just this vengeance machine out killing phrase because that's the way it appears and that's you know she died with this in her you know in in her heart but we learn that she's She's also got this other agenda, and that is to find specifically this daughter. Um, and I will say that this is why I I do think that they have sent an operative north to Winterfell to evaluate mm. the fake Arya mm. to see, you know, is this really 
Arya Stark? Could could it be? And do we have to, you know, go full on rescue her there? <laughs> or, you know, or or what's going on there? So I think we will find out that they have got someone up in the neighborhood without getting too far off topic. And if they don't, uh, have, if they don't, they will by the time they find out Sansa's gone there. And I think you're right yeah. though. Either they probably already yeah. do have someone there. That's a great point. I think, I think I know who, who they have there. I have very specific thoughts about that, but it's probably way, way, way off topic. So. <laughs> but yeah, she definitely, she's definitely aware of it. And, and I love the fact that it adds that little bit of, you know, little bit of extra humanity because mm-hmm. it shows that she's still capable of, of any emotion other than vengeance. And that's, that's gotta be a good thing. Yeah. Does, does Aria <laughs> want to be reunited with her mother in that form? That's just like, might be a good thing. She got away. Woo. I don't know. About, yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. Uh, Nina, what do you think about all this uh, Stoneheart Aria uh, subterfuge and, and possible humanization of a small amount? You know, I've never really been certain of how to, how to feel about it because I, you know, the, the way that I've kind of thought about the Stoneheart story resolving doesn't really involve any of, of uh, you know, her reuniting with Arya or whatever. So I, so I don't know. Is it clear that they still believe that Arya could be alive? Yes, absolutely. Do they know anything of what happened to Arya, like, legitimately? <laughs> but I feel that certainly Stoneheart, well, and the thing is, Stoneheart certainly has always wanted, you know, I think there's some quote, and I forget when, you know, where it's, you know, she wants her son restored to her, or she wants the, if she can't have that, then she wants the people responsible dead. So it's always been this kind of like, you either give me back what was taken from me or I take it from you sort of thing. Mm. So it's not entirely surprising that she would be after Arya in that context. Again, uh, I don't know how to resolve. <laughs> it's tough, right? I don't, I don't know that it necessarily, like what I see of Arya and what I see of Stoneheart doesn't really come together. It's it's interesting to wonder, George. Like George has really left it a good mystery because it is hard. Some of these some of these plot points we can kind of piece together and sort of see at least the how the milestones will be hit. But this one is really tricky. One thing that comes to mind for me is the idea that Stoneheart was originally supposed to be a beyond the wall thing. Like Lady Catelyn was supposed to die beyond the wall mm. in the original narrative. And the idea that they would go north is always fit as a way to kind of circle back to that, especially since we see the brotherhood go north in the show, even though it's for very different reasons and different, different leadership and different members and just different. But Still, that high point of them going north makes sense if they're relorists and they're and they care about defending the realm, which they seem to do. It fits pretty well. Joe, what do you think about this? I think the the heartbreak and why the red wedding stands out to people so much is because it, it's a, it's a storyline cut off in the middle. Mm. But they haven't finished their arc. Her or Rob, at least with Ned, which was uh, heartbreaking enough, he had his rise, so to call it, and he, he had a fall. So you can see why he died. But these two, they haven't uh, got independence for the North and the Riverlands. They haven't avenged Ned. Cat doesn't have her children back. And then that's just cut off. George just cuts us off straight away. And we get very angry of him for doing this because <laughs> he, he makes us cry so much. <laughs> and then, so then we have this, that's the closing of all these possibilities, of all the different ways that Catelyn could have met Aya or Sansa or Bran or Rickon or whatever. And that's all just shut off in one chapter. Mm. Yeah. And right at the end, it opens back up. And suddenly we get all these thousands of possibilities of how she could meet Ayo Sansa or uh, Brandon Recon. And like you say, there's, the problem with Lady Stoneheart is 
she fits into too many places. <laughs> I can come back and have the mercy thing. I think that a lot. She fits really well uh, into John in the north. I have a, a head cannon about Sansa going to the Riverlands and see her. You can fit her in anywhere. Yeah, that's the the heartbreak thing. And it's just brilliant that you can have that much heartbreak and that much excitement about that heartbreak being wiped out in the same book. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> it is really, and, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And like I, I said a billion times, she's my favorite character. So that that whole first half of her book and the, the, the swirling of the drain, like we said earlier, is a very, a very tough read. But I will just shout out uh, my favorite scene of hers is actually with Robin Oldstones, mm, where yeah. Rob really gets his kind of stands up and says, no, 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 you do not say that about Jon Snow. And we hadn't had really that much, well, Robert never brought it up, certainly. And we hadn't had that much John and Catelyn stuff for most of the, the books between them. But then it comes up again in John's memory where Rob first brings up that, um, that John's a bastard and he can't inherit. So I really like those two, again, in the same book, even though they're basically a half away. So that's a really nice connection. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, there, there's that moment in John's last chapter where he sees Lady Catelyn's face, quote, floating in front of him. Ah, good one, floating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and like you said, with Catelyn, Rob's arc, even though it's over, quote, over, there's still, the kingdom he forged is still in play. There's still a lot of people very loyal to him and to his, the idea of this kingdom. And of course, she's got a will. And so there's still, uh, and Lady Stoneheart is aware of that will, even if she disagreed with its contents, she's still going to want to see it carried through, I would guess. But that's yet another plot point for Lady Stoneheart possibly to be involved in that she doesn't have to be involved in. It's just that she could be. Uh, a couple more questions and then we'll move on to one or two more POVs where we're not going to go. We've Some of them we've covered kind of incidentally without focusing on them by attacking other questions. I at least want to make sure we talk about the POV that we haven't, the one we've talked about the least so far, which is Davos. So we'll at least do that. But second set of questions here, uh, Jamie McKenna, this one's for you, Joe. Are you going to do one last uh, Isle of Faces pod after this stream too, or are, we, or are you just going to roll into A Feast for Crows? Yeah, sure, I'll do one more. Why not? I'll cut one together for you. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do another. Cool. I'll throw in a mini review. Yeah, <laughs> yeah come on. Excellent. Yeah, why not? I mean, we're we're just, uh, we're not finishing everything here today. We're so... <laughs> I'll find some scraps. I'll find some scrolls. I'll mash them together. <laughs> feel, feel free to borrow what we didn't cover from this document if you like. <laughs> yeah. Um, jaded uh, Richard Tabor asks, was Tywin really going to send Tyrion to the wall? Because Cersei thinks he was going to be put to death. So what do you guys think? Um, Nina, we'll start with you. Uh, absolutely think that Tywin was being genuine. I think Tywin really was going to send Tyrion to the wall. Cersei, Cersei wants to believe that, that Tywin would have killed Tyrion because Cersei wants to kill Tyrion. <laughs> yeah, Cersei right. wants Tyrion dead and wants to believe that everyone else wants Tyrion dead as much as she does. Yeah. I think that Tywin would have recognized that even though Tyrion is the lowest of Lannisters, even though he's the worst Lannister, even though I hate him, he is still a Lannister and I can't have a Lannister publicly executed. Yeah. So I think he would have recognized if I can put him on the wall and keep in mind, there's still not a Lord Commander at this point, or at least as far as King's Landing knows, Tywin sees, you know, crisis turns to opportunity. I can put a Lannister as Lord Commander. Mm -hmm. That that actually works out quite well for me. I agree because he wanted, he was specifically interested in the election of the Lord Commander, and it was like Slint, pick Slint, yeah, pick Slint. And uh, I totally agree with the spectacle thing. Tyrion or Tywin would hate the spectacles. Quietly packing him off to the wall, 
much more uh, preferable. Do you all, does uh, Lady Gwen or Joe, do you have anything to add to that? Do you disagree with that take or do you think that's pretty much it? That's it. I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. I, I do disagree actually. Yeah. In the end, okay. I think I had the same thoughts as Neil. She made a very uh, compelling argument about that, especially the, the spectacle, like you say, that he does not want this happening um, in front of everyone, especially like out on the turning grounds. But it does really seem like it's pre-arranged. Like the guards are talking about it uh, when Tyrion goes past. Mm. So it's at least kind of seeped out. There's at least something supposed to be going on in the morning. And I can't see Tywin dragging him out and then sending him off to the wall because even Tywin knows Cersei will blow the city up. She will just, like right there and then, she doesn't need wildfire. She will just blow up if that happens. If Tyrion escapes his punishment in front of everyone and she gets the ultimate embarrassment. Hmm. But I can also see the argument for sending Tyrion and having a Lannister stashed up north because there has been rumblings about problems up north and he doesn't really like Janelson them. And so I can definitely see uh, why that would persuade people that he did he did intend to, even if I don't come down that. Good question. Or good answer, rather. <laughs> Let's see. So I had a question, a brief question for you guys to do with uh, that came from Twitter. Strat Christensen asks, which POVs will have the most chapters in the Winds of Winter? And I find myself really struggling to answer that question because I can see why John would have fewer because of the whole death thing. Danny uh, has never had the most in a book because she's isolated and uh, by herself and worse, not worse, but in terms of how many chapters she might have, she if she went, if she gets off the Dothraki Sea, she's going to be mixed in with Barristan, Tyrion, maybe even Victarion. Uh, he'll good chance he's already dead by then. But even if it's just the other two, that's a lot of sharing of POVs. So I can't see it being her either. Tyr- and the same argument then applies to Tyrion. So where do you go from there? Um, I have a hard time picking. It could be back to Cersei because of King's Landing being important. But I have a dark horse mm-hmm. candidate in Sansa because... The North is going to be important as she goes there. She should be she could be a big piece of the center of the action there. Maybe even observing the uh, the rest of the Northern campaign. Maybe taking some of John's chapters away because while he's dead, I don't know. There's there's possibilities there. Plus, she's got her whole Vale arc, which is certainly just hers. There's no other POVs in there. Any other guesses there, or is it that, is that just too hard of a of a question? No, I, I mean I, I kind of agree with the the two you said, um, and it's just simply you got to simply by location. Cersei's the only person in in King's Landing. Yeah, everyone else. We're already because we're we're doing all these episodes about the Winds of Winter, and, and we're we're thinking along these lines. And there are so many point of view characters, and he's drawing them all back into into sharing space. So you know, there's a lot of sharing going on, except for King's Landing. But the Sansa idea is good because she's she's got to have chapters in the Vale, and then she may be one of several. If she gets up north um, during winds, so yeah, and if she gets there, it's going to be like neck- you know, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, so I think it'll be neck and neck between those two. Right on, Nina or Joe. Do you have a, a guess on most POVs uh, for Windsor Winter or most? I mean, it's chapters. It's so hard because I, you know, part of the part of the problem for me is how long is he going to spend on these kind of other arcs that are happening, yeah. like the Ariel Hota arc. Is that going to be like a two chapter thing, a five chapter thing? Like what, what is, what is the point? What are we going to learn there? That Like how much time is that going to take? What is Jamie going to do? Obviously he's going to meet Stoneheart. How long is that going to take? Is it going to be like <laughs> one chapter thing, a three chapter thing? And then what does he do after that? So it's, it's hard because, because like the, the less I feel like I know where a character's arc is going in the winds of winter, <laughs> the less I can feel certain about like, how many chapters they will get. Cause I don't know, could be one, 
Could be six. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and single chapters can be really long. You never know. Like that could be sh- someone could have like Arya is at least a forsaken thing here. Yeah, right. Like Arya's got the most chapters in A Storm of Swords, but she doesn't have the most screen time. So sometimes that can be that can be misleading. Like Daenerys has t- tends to have a lower chapter count, but she has the highest average chapter mm-hmm. length throughout the whole books because her story is so apart from the rest. And uh, that's also what happens with Arya. Arya is a major observer. She's got a ton of chapters, but once she gets to Bravos, her chapter count drops massively, despite being the only character in all, to have a POV in all five books. Um, and the same is true for Bran. He's, a, he's the observer at Winterfell for so much politics and gathering of men and war, and then Ramsay and Theon fighting over Winterfell. He's the the POV for most of that, except for where, where Theon stands in himself. But then now going beyond the wall, the only thing he's observing is his own stuff. You know, he is the center of all that. So that's a big change. Uh, Joe, what did you think? Do you have a, do you have a different take on this or is that kind of where you fall? Well, I, I saw the question earlier. I, I thought to myself, all right, let's sort out who has the much to do and who has the furthest to go. And then I said, Joe, you've described everyone in the book. <laughs> They've all got places to go and people to see. Yeah. I taught myself into every single POV, gaining like five or six chapters. <laughs> um, I think, like you've said, it, it's impossible to guess. I think part of the reason it's impossible is because we don't know how many, how long some of these arcs are going to go. Obviously, not all of them are going to make it to the end of the book. He has to start doing some pretty quick uh, cutting very soon. So some of that is not going to come at the end of the book. Some of it's going to come in the middle like it was, like it has in this book. So even people that we might think are going to go the whole distance, I can't say for definite that Theon's going to last all that long. So maybe Asher gets all of his while John's uh, up in his, his refrigerator being stored and whatever yeah. else. And you can make an argument for almost anyone. I initially, when I very first saw the question, said Aya because I know she's got a lot to do <laughs> to get back. But again, like you say, George knows how to cover that in... Um, less chapters. So it might just come down to, to page count or whatever. Who knows? Yeah. Good question though. I like, uh, that's, a, that's one I hadn't mm. thought about a lot, but it gets us thinking about things in different ways and how, what George's plans might be. Of course, there's so many things you can't predict, but there's also plot lines ongoing. You can predict that, well, this has to end, this has to resolve. And, and that gives you some idea of who might be involved. But yeah, it's uh, certainly not a question we can have definitive answers on quite clearly. So let's, um, before moving on to the outro and our final thoughts, let's talk about Davos for a minute. I think um, y'all in the chat, if you want to get in some last questions, feel free to do that. One little thing that I didn't cover during Valoritas that I wanted to get y'all's take on, as well as a general overview of Davos. So I'll start with this part. And then each of you, when you give your Davos takes, feel free to weigh in on this little point as well, which is the idea of... A hero reborn in the sea, which is Stannis talks about all these prophecies and they're arguing about Edric and mm-hmm. and the life of a child versus the life of the realm and all that. And he just kind of casually mentions the darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends, she talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea, living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs and swears they point to me. A hero reborn in the sea. That is such a that line really stands out to me as kind of odd. And of course, the best candidate for being reborn in the sea seems to be Davos. I mean, the only person I can even think of that went into a body of water and almost died was Tyrion, but that was a river. (laughs) And uh, he, you know, didn't 
didn't seem to be that different after it. <laughs> but whereas Davos had this whole like, oh, I'm, do I want to live? Do I want to, you know, give myself up to the God? Do I want to just let myself die here? Um, and Davos, of course, still serves as a wonderfully interesting character. He's the moral compass, probably the most set on what's good and, and evil. He's probably our best internal monologue as far as telling us what's right and wrong. He's probably the most accurate. Um, maybe some would disagree with that, but and that makes him interesting because Stannis is a man of extremes. His best deeds are really good. His worst deeds are real bad. And yet, why do we need a character who's so honed in on the difference between good and evil when these good and evil parts are so very distinct? Uh, to me, that makes Davos fascinating. But uh, And the supernatural angle just makes it all the more compelling, adds a bit of mystery to it. So uh, let's start with Nina this time. What do you think about Davos as a whole? And do you have any thoughts on this hero reborn in the sea business? Well, with respect to the hero reborn in the sea, I wonder if that, you know, I've, I've had a thought for a long time that the reason Melisandre thinks that Stannis is Azor High is because Melisandre got a vision that Azor High is connected to Dragonstone and assumed that the Lord of Dragonstone is a Azor High reborn. So to the extent that Dragonstone is kind of this place in the sea, it's, yeah. this, it's you know, this island in the sea, maybe Melisandre thinks, oh, that's that's, you know, I'm just going to throw that in as my own little title for okay. Now It doesn't really have anything, like, it's not really based in anything. It's just kind of like, oh, well, I already think Stannis is Zora High, so yeah, let's just add this title, too. Who knows? <laughs> but, no, with, with respect to Davos, I think the really interesting arc with, with Davos and the Storm of Swords is, you know, what, what does it mean to be a Hand of the King? And being Hand of the King isn't just helping the king rule it's saving the king from himself yeah. it's it's making making the choices that the king can't make or won't make because of the decisions the king should be making and it's it's a very it's a very hard line because you get introduced davos is i mean not introduced per chapter but davos is thrown into prison and alistair florin is, is thrown into prison um, too. And he's like, well, you know, I was, I was trying to make the best deal for Stannis. And I was like, no, no, you're trying to make the best deal for Alistair Florin. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, you kind of have these two different hands that are both technically transgressing the, the power of the hand. They're not really doing what they are is within the scope of hand, but it's very different. Alistair Florin is doing it because it's good for Alistair Florin. Davos is doing it because it's good for Stannis. This is this yes. is what Stannis. This is what Stannis should be doing. So it's a very it's a very interesting arc in that respect. Yeah, and it really speaks to what you were saying before about sacrifice. Davos <laughs> was willing to sacrifice himself, his honor, his position, his hand, maybe his life to do what he thought was right here, and he wasn't going to. You know, the only people that were with him were people that he explained the danger and made sure that they were there voluntarily. So uh, I believe that really fits with his attitude and what you're saying. Uh, Joe, what do you think about Davos? And do you have a comment on Reborn in the Sea? I don't really about the Reborn in the Sea. So I think the, the interesting part of his rebirth to me is how close he comes to being like devoutly religious, mm. which obviously plays into his, um, his arc anyway of coming against Melisandre. But he comes very, very close to relying wholeheartedly on the Seven and, and the Mother specifically. And then he eventually drifts back to uh, kind of not not going that way. But um, it's weird because Davos seems, even though I think we get five or four chapters in this book, <laughs> six. But anyway, six. six yeah. 
he seems like the most uh, stretched out to me, if you give me. If I think of his last mm. chapter and his first chapter, his first chapter seems so long ago where he's on that <laughs> island and everything else. But I think the point of his arc in this book is that he he's the third time lucky. We've seen Ned be a hand, we've seen Tyrion do a hand, and both of them eventually fell. Now we're seeing Davos doing it right. And the fact that they're all hands to Baratheon kings, kind of, with Joffrey, mm. um, it really sets it off. So we've... And, you know, you can only go so far with Robert and Joffrey, to be fair. Stannis is a little, more, little bit more um, going to listen to you, but Davos also does a way better job than the other two. And, <laughs> yeah, I just, like you've already said, it's because of his intent and what he's actually doing. There's no personal gain in it whatsoever, quite the opposite most of the time. And he's he's still going for it, especially when we get to Edric and, and what he does there and what he puts on the line and him giving Stannis his ultimate purpose. And... This isn't something new for Stannis. He's already had this idea that he's supposed to go and save the world, but he doesn't do anything about it until Davos <laughs> puts it on the line. Melisandre is not enough to persuade him. It's Davos actually putting it, uh, putting a kind of a, a well, a real flesh and blood example in front of him, saying, "No, look, this is where you need to look," and uh, and it works. And I actually forgot that we don't see Davos again. I, I always thought that we did see him at the wall with with Stannis, but we don't. So it's a real. That makes that last chapter even more uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it pivots away from him to John and Samwell as the observers of Stannis and Davos just kind yeah. of just pieces out to go to Skagos, and we don't even know where he's at. It's no. like, where is Davos? Yeah, where did he go? He'll <laughs> <laughs> find out for a while because in the Feast for Crows, it's like, oh, his head's been cut off and put on the walls of White Harbor. Wait, what? Are you? <laughs> hey, that's not a cool off-screen death, man. <laughs> but of course, twas not mm. at all. Um, and Lady Gwen, let's have your takes on Davos. Well, I don't like a ton to add because you guys have already uh, said some very good things. I, I think it's interesting at the end there uh, when he he frees. So I guess I'm focusing more on the, mm. the relationship between Melisandre and Davos, and he frees Edric Storm. Um, and he develops this whole, you know, the, you know, he's got the letter from the wall and he's got this, this idea that this is what Stannis should be doing. Melisandre didn't see either one of those things coming. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting to me because she's, you know, she's proven to be so fallible in so many ways. And uh, those are these two kind of giant things that she missed. And further along that line, when, um, Davos was dead, but not dead. She didn't see that either. So mm. <laughs> I think we really have to start doubting, even though she is proved to have some <clears throat> sort of real ability. Um, we do have to doubt where that really leads her. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Does she have a big Davos size blind spot <laughs> in her flame reading? Maybe mm. she does. It's so meta to me that she isn't, quite there. She's not on the right page about these prophecies. Like she's, it's like, she's a, a it's like, she didn't re quite read far enough into the book to, to get a few yeah. of the important details. Mm. And at the same time, it's this letter that she never saw that if she had seen that letter first, she'd be like, we need to get the heck up to the wall. And, but instead it's Davos, the guy who can't even read until he learns is the one who's like <laughs> reading these old, this new letter that is, speaks to this old thing. So I think that's super meta, I think. All right, great takes, everybody. Let's um, let's start working on our on our exit here. As a super chat from Josh Davis from down under, saying uh, sending a superhero pair sticker. <laughs> That's awesome. Very famous <laughs> superhero. 
So I had a, a quick two last bits here um, before we say goodbye. One is just to say what your favorite chapter was and just briefly describe what that chapter is. Because as usual, saying the name of the chapter is like, wait, which one is that? <laughs> uh, Lady Gwen, you have Sansa 7 marked here, don't you? I, yes, I certainly <laughs> do. <laughs> that is Sansa's last chapter, probably known to most people as only cat, but also... Um, the snow castle scene and uh, so much else uh, favorite it's i i would almost go as far to say and maybe i will i'm going out on a limb because i'll be like joe because joe has favorites that vary from minute to minute he's got three of them crossed out in this document <laughs> it's, it's true he does have three crossed out but, two crossed out but, two crossed out. but i i'm gonna say sons of seven is like maybe my favorite chapter in the whole series Ooh, it is a really good chapter we, yeah. we spent a lot of time on it and about our reread us even though we're supposed to move through them somewhat quickly we did not <laughs> so yeah joe you joe wrote John seven crossed it out. He wrote John eleven crossed it out, and then Danny four was your what you settled on. Well, actually, what, what has I wrote, that changed? Yeah, is uh, John seven through to John eleven? Oh. I, I wanted all five of them. <laughs> all of them. Um, all of them. But, because I just love that that stretch of battling on the wall. But uh, <laughs> at the end, I chose uh, Danny four, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, Daenerys with all the envoys and just kind of. Outside uh, Yunkai, I mean, and where she deals with the Storm Crows and she deals with the Second Sons and then she deals with the, the English envoys and she just deals with them all in, in very different ways and basically just owns them. Like they don't even know what they are. <laughs> she just runs rings around them. They don't even realize how badly they're being mentally beaten around the bush here. And it's just a really good um, culmination of not just her her military mind that she's really developed in this book, I think that gets uh, forgotten a bit because she doesn't get the chance to flex it so much in in dance, but she really does learn a lot about uh, warfare and being in the field, but just politically and just how to use their assumptions about her age and her gender against them and just whack them over the head with it, basically. <laughs> I just love her. She just destroys them <laughs> and they don't even realise. And uh, yeah, and obviously the result is fairly conclusive so that's my favorite i think cool that's well said and well chosen uh, for for good reasons that i i find hard you're you're swaying me a little bit uh <laughs> nina you have catlin five written which one is catlin five that is that is old stones oh, that, yeah. is, that is catlin and rob at old stones to me it is it, it's a very it's a very sad and beautiful chapter because it's kind of the encapsulation of everything that goes wrong in Catelyn's arc in Storm of Swords, <laughs> where they are they are completely doomed. They are desperately trying to salvage things while marching along to their doom. It has really great tension between Rob and Catelyn, where you understand where Catelyn is coming from, even though she's obviously got these biases that are they're coloring her opinion. And I like that it all comes back at the end. The, you know, we we ended Old Stones with kind of politically with Rob. And then it comes back with Old Stones with with Lady Stoneheart. I think it's it's just a really really nice chapter. Yeah, that's a good call for sure. Um, I'm gonna go with I think Samwell Four. I was pretty giddy about it during Valeridis because, and, and I'm definitely pulling a bit of a recency bias on that one because it's just this time through it, it had more for me that I had missed. 
And I had a ton of fun explaining the great five-headed parallel that really emerges across several chapters, including the next, uh, both of the next books, because uh, it splits up during John and Sam's POVs. But it really, I think it kicks off. I think you could say it kicks off in Sam 4. And that's when they're talking about Gilly and, and uh, Gilly's babe and Mance's babe and how this all just, the five-headed parallel is this. <laughs> John and uh, Sam are, or rather Sam and Ned are like the pretend dads of the story, right? They pretend to be the father of a bastard that's not theirs. Sam is doing that here. John does that with, or Sam, Ned does that with John. Then we have the fake mothers. They're nursemaids. We have Willa and we have Gilly pretending a child is theirs that isn't theirs using a similar role. Both of them are actual mothers. That's what, what as all wet nurses would be. We don't know what happens to uh, Willa's original child, but that's a side part, but uh, it's still in a parallel. We have the real mothers, Liana and uh, presumably, and uh, Gilly, or not Gilly, but uh, Dalla, sorry. And they're, there's a wonderful parallels wrapped up in there because of Magar, Rhaegar Mance is also a parallel. And Magar. yeah, Magar Rance, uh, whatever, you know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> mixing up my names here. And then uh, we have the, the real dads, like I said, Rhaegar and Mance. Then we have the, um, the ones who kick it all off. So there's five sets of parallels and the babies themselves, I guess, is the fifth one. John Snow being the fake, the, the baby with the hidden parentage. And now we have little Eamon who might have the exact same name as John. Maybe if Eamon is John's <laughs> pretend, pretend given name or intended name, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's so cool. So I like, that's why I like Sam for so much um, because it starts off all that. And that's something that I didn't fully realize was going on. I only caught part of those parallels before, but seeing it all laid out is like, whoa. That is pretty serious. And it also touches back to John, uh, Sam's appearance at the wall, which is, has so much in common with John, where they're both nobles that were set aside and sent to the wall. And they have, you know, these, these different comparisons with their upbringing. So that's all very cool. I love, I, I'm obsessed with parallels. <laughs> so let's see here. One last bit. Like I said, a, a shout out to a guy named, or a girl, I don't know, Robin 20 on westeros.org. Robin is a male character. That's why I assume it's a guy. Robin is from um, uh, Wheel of Time. Uh, but we shouted out Robin both of the first two times we did a wrap-up episode because he did a thread on westeros.org uh, compiling all the deaths in each book. So Classic. it's hard sometimes to exactly know where the the deaths are because sometimes they get announced in, the, in, a, in a, a book, but they actually happen in the previous book. So don't take all these too specifically like some of these there's probably more deaths on this list that are revealed the next book but didn't actually happen in this one also thanks to uh carol funk for another super chat with a pair with hearts in addition to josh davis's superhero pair so we got some pairs coming through that's cool thanks mm, thanks y'all pairs, mm, pairs. <laughs> uh, relates to the sansa chapter doesn't it <laughs> yes. i will not take your pomegranate but i will take this pair <laughs> i will take your pair <laughs> 
So let's see here. We've got Igo, Septon Ut, Vargo Hote, Salor the Bald, Prendal Nagazim, and Marrow. Those are a bunch of cell swords killed. From the Night's Watch, this is a sadly long list here. Long list. Maslin, Sir Otten Withers, Thorin Smallwood, Small Paul, Brown Bernard, Hake, Bannon, Garth of Old Town, Raleigh of Sisterton, Sir Byam Flint, Gior Mormont, Def Dick Follard, Rast, Young Henley, Old Henley, Easy, Dornish Dilly, Lark the Sisterman, Softfoot, Riles, Chet, Donald Noy, Red Allen of the Rosewoods, Sir Andrew Tarth, Sir Aladale Winch, Watt of Long Lake. I mean, look at all the, and there's so many unnamed ones because this, this list of all the battles the Night's Watch had in this book is crazy. Mm. The Fist, Craster's Mutiny, the flight back to the wall, the raid of the Thens on the far side of Castle Black, the first assault on the wall with the Turtle and Mag the Mighty, the second assault of the wall, which culminated in Stannis' arrival. Off page, the Battle of the Bridge of Skulls. There's just so many battles. It's like, wow, there were a lot of battles at the wall, geez, or near it. Among the free folk, we got Jarl, Craster, Steer, Quart, Stone Thumbs, Igrit, Harma Dogshead, Dalla, Mag the Mighty, Bodger, lots of giants and mammoths and uh, countless unnamed ones. Among the Northerners, we got Robin Flint, Sir Wendell Manderley, Donald Locke, Owen Nori, Daisy Mormont, Small John Umber, Rob Stark, Gray Wind, Sir Hellman Tallhart, Rickard Carstark. Most of those died at the Red Wedding, but there's... Uh, thousands more literally that died at the Red Wedding and on uh, campaigns that we don't know the names of. Ditto this next group, which is Riverlanders. Lucas Blackwood, Aegon Frey, Peter Frey, Sir Garth Goodbrook, Sir Titus Frey, Merritt Frey, Catelyn Stark, Hoster Tully, Lysa Aaron, and two of the guards that were killed in Jamie's escape, Delp and Elwood. Uh, long live Long <laughs> <laughs> Among the Ironborn, they did okay. Only Balon and Lord Botley, apparently, uh, that we hear of is probably a few more, but that's it that we hear of. Among Westerners, lots of unnamed ones, of course, in the many battles that take place, but amongst named characters, Joffrey, Tywin, Polliver, the Tickler, Teon Frey, Willem, Lannister, and Sir Cleos Frey. Now, I'm assuming that Mountains Manor from the West, they may not be, but whatever. Got to put them somewhere. Uh, Miranese, Krasnese, Monaklas, Grazdan, Mo Ulhor, Osnak, Zopal, and then a few other randoms like Simon Silvertongue, Kyle of the Brotherhood Without Banners, uh, some Crownlanders like Sir Dantos and Gunser Sunglass was burned. Obviously, Oberyn Martell, Shay, Lord Eon Hunter, and so many more, probably. But <laughs> what a what a list! It's 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 nice to end with the butchers' bill, isn't it? Setting us up for a feast for Christmas, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh. Well said. Well said. It all come together. <laughs> so let us have our lovely guests tell everyone where to find them again. Let's do that again because it's it's good to uh, repeat. And so make, make sure people hear it. And uh, so it's in two places, beginning and end. So let's start uh, start as we began. Lady Gwen, please tell everyone where to find you and what y'all are working on right now. Yeah, well, find us at RadioWesteros.com. You can access all of the places where you can find our podcast. And we also have a YouTube channel. So you can just hop right over there to find us as well. Uh, and we're working on our uh, our streams of winter uh, every Saturday at 5, which is a companion uh, live stream series to our Winds of Winter Primer. And we're just talking about where all these characters have, have ended up and are going to be going at the beginning of May. Hell yeah, that's great. Sounds perfect. And hopefully we have wins at least soon-ish <laughs> to lead into it's that. It's going to roll 
to that's, it. That's right? what we're hoping for. That's <laughs> what we're hoping for with Val Aridas too. We finish that up and we can go week to week on I'll wins a winner if we're lucky. <laughs> yeah, we're all just going to coast into that's it. That's the play. Slide, sled right into it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Joe Buckley, same deal. Tell everyone what's up with you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter normally, talking about something or other, so at Sir Buckley. <laughs> uh, you can also find me in the other places, doing some scraps and scrolls for, for this project. Uh, we've got a Patreon episode coming up where I'll be reading the first chapter of my big old book. If you want a book about castles or a large paperweight, it serves as both. <laughs> you can buy that um, I'll be reading the chapter on Storm's End, which happens to be the first one and one of my favourites. So that's coming up in our in our little gap here. Plus we'll have some sparkle quizzes and like I say, uh, scraps and scrolls will be back soon as well. Hell yeah. You know what? It's a, I think it's a very smart idea for you to read your own book because we Americans love the British accent. So you're just reading your own book is like, that's a, a, an extra draw right there. We love. I've been resisting because I know there's spelling errors in there and I do not want to look at it. I've not opened it since it came out and now I've uh, <laughs> unfortunately been voted against. So I have to. <laughs> we we got to have that voice, man. <laughs> and, I'm doing my best farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and Nina, same question. Uh, accentless Nina. <laughs> um, uh, I am I am on Tumblr, so you can find me goodqueenally.tumblr.com. Again, that's goodqueenally.tumblr.com. You can send me asks anytime, uh, or I'll write posts, or I'll just post, you know, goofy memes that I made. Um, I, I pop in and out of a Facebook group fairly regularly. Again, you know, like 80% memes. Um, and, <laughs> and that's basically, and, you know, obviously Valerie Reedus will be back soon and my, my thoughts will probably be dumped on, dumped on there too. Oh yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Definitely. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks again to all my guests for coming. This was a great discussion. Thank you to all the live commenters who showed up and added their thoughts and questions. You definitely gave us some great things to think about and to go off on. Uh, thank you very much to Ashea. Usually she, you get to hear her more in the episode, but we didn't have any quotes for her to read this time. And there's so many people speaking. She has enough to do as it is, um, especially with the weird stuff happening today with the stream, but everything worked out just fine. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods that post all the chapters in the Facebook group and lead the excellent discussions accompanied by excellent artwork. Super fun and adds a lot to each episode. Same goes for all our regular participants on Flick and Slack and Discord and non-mods on Facebook. A lot of you are very active. Our Facebook group is quite active. It's a very good place to discuss things outside the reread, but also the reread. Thank you to Claradox.de. That's Michael Klarfeld for all these awesome maps behind us and the video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredis music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the regular History Westeros music intro and outro. Thanks to our Benjineer. His name really is Ben, and he really is our engineer. So how could I not call him that? Right? <clears throat> yeah. Like I said at the beginning, we'll be back with Valar Reredis, The Feast for Crows, the first set of chapters on March or May 31st that is and we hope to see you there I'm going to now read the full patrons list so well not the full full page the normal patrons list not every single patron I know that from experience I did do that once so some of y'all have heard the bonus episode where I did the full patrons list uh it wasn't the whole list she and I we split our own 
but it wasn't like yeah. the whole whole list, which is over 700 people. Um, but I did. It did take it me. Lot, it did take me 25 <laughs> minutes or something to do the whole whole list one time, and I uh, somewhat regretted it. But I was glad. It was one of those things where you're really glad when you're done with it. But you're like, why did I do this? This is a lot of names. But it was fun. It was actually fun. But I'm just gonna have a video well it changes so often though there's even though it's usually just a little different it is mm-hmm. typically different sometimes it's only like yes. two different names out of like a hundred but <laughs> still those names got to get their shout outs i like reading them and people like hearing them That's, we, we we have fun with these names so yeah let's say uh thank you to uh our, the mysterious br the hand of the king lord stephen stark titles titles hand of queen of shea who's known as the best his stream is probably still going on right now we 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 hate to overlap his stream, but our technical difficulties made that kind of unavoidable today. So uh, check him out right now. That's going. That should still be going on probably for at least another hour. Uh, also, thanks to Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, our Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister is the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everor, Warden of the South. The elite from outside the realm include Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields the Dagger of Dragonglass and the Valyrian Stalblade, Red Frost. Lady Sarah Connolly, the Willful, is, says wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Treasure. <laughs> and she is Jenny's patron. Our White Walker patrons include Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes, and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the First Men, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the Ice Forged Greatsword, Pale Frost. The Small Council includes Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Lord Benjin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, Master of Coin, and Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers. Our lords and ladies in their castle include Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, the most delicious castle of all, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, Lord Bemi Snuggle Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood dual wielder of Valyrian short shorts glorious morning and little light wise sharpshooter of the werewood and ironwood laminated longbow Todd Von Oben when you fear things cannot get worse snuggle bunny enters the fray I, I credit that that name as improving my diction all by itself because it's a challenge that I have had to face many times <laughs> the bastard of the wolf's wood is first forester of the old gods he's sworn to house iron wherewood their motto listen for the silence lady Liana Kelly of the wolf of wolf island is protectress of the steel hold Casey Stark is of house acres lady K of house archer is lady of the earth dog hall huntress of the wolf's wood and guardian of Maddie squirrel's bane the mighty dire weenie lady Raywin of house Dillsdane is 
is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, is heir to Bloodraven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mara of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted spoons. Painted spoons. <laughs> Excuse me, with painted moons. And I'm sure it's overrun with kitties. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy, the steady wielder of the Valyrian steel blade, Fate. Do you want to read your High Council? I do Okay. I don't have <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, Queen's High Council is led by, or is, includes, Rebea Starrise, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim is Master of Coin. Grand Maester Rennie is whose rod and ring and mask are Quartz Crystal, wielder of the Valyrian steel pen, fire and ink. Lady Tracy the Ascendant is ruler of the Cloud Keep, Master of Laws. The Purple Lord is Leo Anansi, Master of Whispers. Our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darklin, the Night Slayer, Valeri- wielding the Valyrian sword, Onyx Abyss. He's backed by Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, Gregor Snow called Snowbear, a bastard of Winterfell, Vaughn of House Furster, Sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field, Visenya, let us hold Dark Sister once, is their motto, and Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight, not Sir Batman, Bateman, the Dark Knight. <laughs> Our Red Wedding Band is led by Sir Newt of the Rock, wielding Dweemer Note, a, we- a werewood lute with Valyrian steel strings, but sadly, he's had a uh, tragic accident, but he's been reborn as Desert Stormborn C11. Yeah. <laughs> Miracles do happen, y'all. Our Queen's Guard includes Lord Captain Commander Hayma Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune, I Must Not Fear. Fear is the Mind Killer. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades Fire and Ice and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber the Adamant is the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine's motto is We Finish What You Begin, and Nora Neko rounds out the group. Our beard guard includes Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum red and brown, Stay Frosty, and Sir Tim Corgyle is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Last but not least, our History of Westeros' official Night's Watch which is led by Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the silent giant, wielder of the Valyrian steel greatsword, A Winter's Kiss, and he's backed by first builder Magor Snow, Magor the Cool, a.k.a. Uh, the Fire in the Snow, uh, first ranger Sir Source Delica of House Gramercy, and first steward Jacob Storm called Steelspine, the Bastard of Blackhaven. Actually, I think that's... I meant to replace that. We have the return of Sir Jurion, the Pale Wind, called... Well, Sir Julian of the Torrentine called Pale Wind. So we'll just say we have four backing our Lord Commander for now until I sort that out. But hey, the more the merrier. But that is the end of our shout outs for this time. We'll see you all for the beginning of Valar Reedus, A Feast for Crows. Hope to see you there. And also hope to see you for the debut of our Serwin of the Mirror Shield episode Sunday at the usual Valar Reedus time. If you're not a patron, in which case you may have seen the episode already. Anyway, thanks again to my guests. Thanks again to Ashea. We'll see you all next time. Valar, reread us.